Turkey Call All Access, the official podcast of the National Wild Turkey Federation. Brought to you by Nomad. Turkey Call All Access is a digital campfire where we discuss topics of the day, conservation efforts, tips and techniques to better your experience of field, and our members' stories. Welcome back to another episode of the Turkey Call All Access podcast. It's almost turkey season. And we've got a really exciting conversation with Dr. Brett Collier, Dr. Mike Chamberlain, and our very own Mark Hatfield, hosted by Mr. Paul Campbell, all about turkeys. We'll get right into that in 90 seconds. Bass Pro Shops and the National Wild Turkey Federation stand together to help make a difference for the wildlife and scenic lands that enrich our hunting lifestyle. Since 1973, we have positively impacted more than 22 million acres and invested more than $9 million into wild turkey research, an effort supported by Bass Pro Shops. The restoration of the wild turkey is one of America's greatest conservation success stories, but the work is far from over. Through the continued contributions of partners like Johnny Morris and Bass Pro Shops, the NWTF mission is a movement that is delivering the right conservation work at the right place and at the right scale. Hey guys, this is Aaron with The Hunting Public. Each spring we head to the woods chasing turkeys and one overlooked product that we use religiously is Sawyer permethrin. We've used it for years to keep ticks off of us and it's worked extremely well. We don't like messing around with Lyme disease, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, anything like that. So I would highly recommend if you're a spring turkey hunter spending any time in warmer climates in the outdoors to use Sawyer permethrin. Learn about their advanced insect repellents and family of technical lightweight water filters at Sawyer.com. Hey y'all, I'm Jason Hart, founder of Nomad Hunting Clothing. At Nomad, we're bringing simplicity and authenticity back to hunting. Whether you hunt to escape your hectic work life, for locally sourced organic meat, or to socialize with friends, to uphold your favorite family traditions, we're with you and we do the same. At Nomad, we understand your gears and investments, so our products are engineered and priced for every hunter, tested in the real world, and designed to last. Hunting is in all of us. Nomad is with you. So, I'm not... I'm not a biologist. Mark knows this. I'm just an idiot. I'm not either. And I was I was having a conversation with our our. I, I actually went to uh, a trapping uh, research project in Ohio. They invited me down, and a couple of Ohio State students were were talking just like you were to me, like I'm a biologist. So what's a what's a cloaca? Is that like a turkey butthole? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I knew that it was just and it's, just to it's get multi-purpose. Yeah. Yes. Well, yes. Only penis. It's And typical yeah. biologists, they're like, well, kind of. And then it was just just that, like dumped all of this information. And I just, I'm like, you, you missed the joke. I was trying to be funny. They're just like. <laughs> You guys are great. See, there we go. There. Thanks for the laugh, Brandon. Brandon gets it. Get him up here. Get him a chair. Got to flap off that box. You need to, Brian. Mike, last time we talked, I asked you and Patrick mm-hmm. to. I did. I did an RF with RFQ, RFP request for proposal mm-hmm. on why turkeys don't gobble on an east wind. I'm, I'm looking for an update on that. I'm, I'm sure that that was went immediately to the top of your list. Right? It did not. Oh, okay. What's it? What's yeah, they're, they're facing west. <laughs> you couldn't hear. You can't hear. You're on the opposite. You're on the wrong side. East, I had never. East wind is in the duck hunting world, deer hunting world. East is least. Yeah. You got to have east southeast or east northeast. But if you have due east, east is least. 
I, I don't know about that. I got an awful lot for really? animals for the East. Oh, it sucks. <laughs> I, so that's suck. the that's probably my favorite, like hunting old wives' tale or whatever you know, whatever the the phrase is. The turkeys don't gobble on an East wind, so. I'm gonna really need you to take that seriously and get. Uh, they wake up and go. Answer. Is that east, northeast, or east? One of those goblin papers we used. Uh, yeah, but it, it was not. It wasn't the aspect of the wind. Yeah, it was, it was just the speed. The presence and how it was fast the speed. It was going, right? Yeah, so, so anything over eight miles an hour yeah. or something like, or eleven miles an hour. Good job, Patrick. I yeah. I I brought it up with them. I'm, 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 he didn't I'm waiting. He didn't. Yeah. He, oh, uh, he told me that he just, yeah, yeah you got to figure that out. So I, I do have, I do have a, a question about just like a broad topic of, of research and, and how, how academia and agencies and how all of that works, like wild turkey research works. Like what is your role and your role and, and your grad students, like your, your role within the, the world of wild turkey research? How, do, how does that work? Cause it, I asked you, I can't just throw a Garmin watch on a turkey in my backyard and watch it. Like, that doesn't count as research. So it's a little more complicated than that. So what, what is your role within, like, wild turkey research? Yeah, so we're basically contracted to do the research that we do. No different than you hiring a contractor to work on a house or to perform services for you. So Through the state agencies? That's correct. Okay. And, and federal. nonprofits, federal, okay. state. Um, so... We're essentially given questions. We would, we would like to know X, Y, Z. Let's say reproductive success, whatever it is. East winds. Yeah, east winds and gobbling. Yeah. From an agency, though. And yes. <laughs> we, we provide a budget to the agency, and they approve it. They develop a contract between the agency and the university, and then our job is to provide those deliverables and what – the reality is we do very little of the work, the field work ourselves. We hire and mentor graduate students and technicians who are the, they're the guts of the, of the show. They do the work and then we help them make sense of the information they collect and then explain it to the agency so that they can derive management implications from the work. Otherwise, there was no point in doing the research. So we're kind of the work. I look at myself in a lot of ways as the facilitator. You know, the money comes to the university through these grants, and then I facilitate the work getting done by hiring people, and in, at least in my case, getting out of their way and letting them do their jobs, and making sure they have the tools that they need to be successful and to provide the data that the agency is paying. And, and that information, the agencies take it, and then they make their decisions on season dates, bag limits, and sometimes and that's the well, <laughs> well they, they make recommendations. Recommendations, yeah. okay. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes, I mean, you can look throughout the history of turkey science, and I could point you to hundreds of examples of really good work that was done, and there were no changes of any kind made. Um, theoretically, what we're doing is providing information to agencies that would allow them to improve management and conservation of the landscape for this bird as well as the other species that, you know, that cohabit the same vegetative communities. But that's the onus there is on the agencies. Yeah, yeah but I think there's an important distinction made in that 
our research that, that we do with studies is generally is not regulatory specific. It's demography specific. It's impact assessment. It's uh -huh. evaluating management strategies. Um, we're, we're not regulatory actors, so to speak. Um, I mean, we do comment on regulations. We have opinions. We do science that addresses regulations. But, but it's really hard to do broad-scale experimental work that's specific to a regulatory policy because regulatory policies are so variable uh -huh. uh, and they only exist on state boundaries um, as opposed to say, ecosystems or whatnot. So, so I'd say that the science that we do generally is used to inform population demography and then that provides the backbone for state agencies mm -hmm. to make regulatory changes if they deem them necessary. The demography, you mean who was uh, survival, survival, yeah, survival yeah. recruitment, abundance, yeah, success, you know, that's specific to the bird itself. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You know, yeah. what, what kind of, you know, if we do prescribe burning at this time of year and this size, what kind of an impact does it have? If we manage forests this way, what kind of an impact does it have? And so I think that, you know, you kind of have to separate out the, uh, and they're intertwined and, and intricately, obviously, yeah. right? But you kind of, from our perspective as facilitators, we facilitate science that informs regulatory policy. We don't actually study regulatory yeah. policy per se. Yeah. And that's, so that's boiled down by the agency. And yeah. so Mike and Brett, you all probably get more specific questions specific from the agency. It says we want to do X, Y, and Z. Okay. And NWTF role is we get some broader categories for general directions of research that the agencies would like to see. And then so we're a facilitator just like these guys are, but we're we're not conducting the work, we're not overseeing the work. Uh -huh. We're we're helping more along the lines with the social license and probably trying to have some groundswell of supporters of this research and hopefully its application when the agency does make recommendations for this. You know, they could come in and say this data that Mike and uh, Brett found out and then they do this and we need to do this change to regulations. If the commissioners or the hunters in the state that that's getting ready don't support that, it's not going to be implemented. So that's where our role is, is general direction for research maybe driving some specific topics that are going to be more regional or national in scope for our technical committee, which is the agencies to use. And if you look at like the advent of social media has kind of changed how we do our business because we're, we're now in a situation where yes, the agencies are, are funding the research by and large, but the research can then be, um, kind of couched and presented in a way where the broader public can interpret it, can see it, can appreciate it, and hopefully implement it on yeah. on private lands. Which, you know, until until very recently, it was hard to get information to tens of thousands, millions of private landowners because we would go give a presentation or we would we would do these things that had fairly small audiences. And 20 or 30 people. Yeah. Right? And now, you know, you can post something on social media and say, hey, this is a this is a way you can improve turkey habitat on your property doing this, this, and this, and tens of thousands see it immediately. And so it's really allowed us to take the research that's primarily agency driven and and bring it to the broader public, which is where we we're going to have to be if we're going to have wild turkeys, you know, in the future. It's a powerful, powerful tool. 
For sure. So I'm glad I'm glad you brought up social media. I wanted to start with this and it slipped my mind. So we got Wild Turkey Doc, Dr. Shortsburg. What are we calling you today? We got to have one for you. Uh, Bearded bio. Bearded bio. Okay. That's good. That's real strong. (laughs) I I like that. Bearded bio. Okay. So look, I want to. Every I, I I did a I did a like a Google search and you can see like search history, and it's funny because you like Google wild turkey research and this is just normal people going to Google and you look from I think mean, two thousand and four and you see like little blips and then you see like when we start to have population declines and then you can see where those Google searches go up and I've heard you talk about and I've heard you talk about how much wild turkey research is going on in this country right now. And I mean, just the ballpark, how many, how many projects do you think are going on across the country? I mean, I know specifically for the NWTF, we have supported financially about 20, a little less than 25 unique projects in the past two or three years. Yeah. And so yeah. I don't know how many total numbers are out there. I mean, I know it's more than we've ever seen. There, yeah. There's certainly more than, <laughs> so I started studying turkeys in 1993 and there are more active research projects now than any time in my career, by far, by far. And I would say too, Andy, earlier, there's different names of professors that are coming in or the uh-huh. people that are doing research that I've never heard of before. They're they're wading into this. You know, it's just, it seems like it's getting a larger footprint for people that are just interested in it because I think one funding is available. There's a priority on it. And, you know, it's, it's a topic that's supported. It's, it's, it's interesting that it took, you know, like, I guess, perceived or real, just the population declines we've had. So that, that pain point, you know, people only care about something. If you take something away that they love, you know, you threaten that. And then, and then here we are 33 years. It's the most research we've ever done. I mean, part of you has to enjoy that, that, I mean, you're getting to do a lot of more, you know, a lot of really interesting research, novel research stuff that you haven't done. And the other part, you just as a turkey hunter. I mean, is there a little panic underlying there, like with you guys? I mean, because from a turkey hunter perspective, I, I mean, you, you hear about population declines and you just get nervous. You know, you, just, sure. you really start sure. like clamming up, you know. And, and, and so from your perspective as, as a professional and the people that really have your finger on the pulse of this population of these animals, I mean, is there a little panic underlying there? Or are you just excited to, to do the work and you see a lot of options? I wouldn't say it's positive. I don't, I, don't think, I, yeah. I, I don't think panic's the right word. And the reason I don't think it's the right word is because I think that we caught it early when other bird quail being the operative mm-hmm. one that I think about a lot, they caught it late, right? We, we tended to have enough activity within the field um, you know, with Mike and me and a bunch of other people that are and state agencies, especially that monitoring and continue to collect data, um, we tended to, or I think we we caught this tip at the beginning, as opposed to catching it thirty years later or twenty years yeah. later, where we couldn't do anything about it. And I think that you know, when you talk about that, the a lot of research that's been spurred. The reason it's been spurred is because we caught that tipping point, right? Um, I mean, I can remember them talking about, you know, grassland bird declines in the 90s uh-huh. with regard to, to Bob White Whale. It just it didn't seem like anything was happening. But I think that that I don't have panic about it because we caught it early. Um, I, I obviously have concerns. Yeah. Um, but I think that we are thus far states, states because uh, the states are the regulatory agencies that make the decisions, right, are doing a pretty good job at um, addressing some of those concerns. And implementing actions 
uh, you know, actions being a pretty broad umbrella to, you know, support turkeys and try and use the science to um, better focus efforts such that we can hopefully reduce the, the rate of the decline. So I think that we, we didn't get all the way down here and suddenly say, oh, we've got a problem. I think we're at the point where we can actually do something about the problem. So I'm not mad. Yeah. So when when we started to see a problem, that you know, kind of that tipping point, what what were what were some of the indicators? Was it was it just strictly harvest totals were dropping? Was well, it the whole yeah, survey? Yeah. Yeah. So, that's, so it's weird. Um, and jump in here whenever you're ready. Yeah. So harvest didn't really drop. So so the number, generally speaking, the number of birds shot every year is related pretty strongly to how many people are out in the woods, right? And and in some ways, I guess turkey hunting is self-regulating. Right? If you don't have a lot of turkeys, you don't have a lot of turkeys getting shot, and you lose turkey hunters. Um, but where I think we really saw the, the biggest impact was our, our pulls per hen numbers. Productivity. So our, yeah. pro, our production numbers were, you know, maintaining in where you wanted to be in the threes and fours, you know. So, you know, our the surveys that all the agencies do, you'd go out and they'd see, you know, a couple of hens and they'd have, you know, six or eight bolts with them. And that was cool. And then all of a sudden it was one or two. And, and, and it wasn't this long, slow decline. It was like the really rapid sort of change. And it, and it wasn't all at once, but it seemed like all the states were about, you squinted your eyes at it, all the states were about the same point kind of post-restoration, you know? States who restored earlier, I mean, disagree with mm-hmm. you, but states who restored earlier, you know, they tended to get to this little tipping point where the, the pulse per hand started to go down. At about, I don't know, it was 25, 30 years, uh-huh. right? States that restored later, they weren't quite there, but but it all seemed to occur. And so the, the, our productivity indices were really the the kind of first thing that, that we all started. that was poults per yeah. hen, basically. Poults observed per hen in the summer. And if you look if you look at the, the data collected over the past, say, 30 years across the South and in other regions now that have kind of started paying attention, there was this slow decline that from one year to the next, it really you didn't, didn't change. notice it. Yeah. You know, big deal. But when you when you graph it out across 20 years, you see that, you know, these fairly dramatic declines in, in the number of pulps that were produced. But but meanwhile, say 2000, 2005, 2006, you, you were seeing harvest increasing in a lot of states. And in the states where it was not increasing, it, it, it wasn't a if it did decline, it wasn't enough of a decline for somebody to go, well, we've got a problem here. And and there's a variety of reasons for that, one of which, you know, Brett mentioned is, you know, harvest is primarily a function of effort. There are a lot of people out there and they're, you know, the tools and technology and the way we do things have changed. And so harvest is just a good proxy for, for hunting effort, really. Um, fast forward to 2023 and those metrics have, have continued to decline in some areas and in a lot of areas they've kind of stabilized, but where they've stabilized is at this level that is not where we want them to be. Yeah. You know, we want to be making more turkeys than it we are. It seemed like mid 2000s, 2007, 2008, we started to see South Carolina, Georgia, North mm-hmm. Carolina really started to be the first vocal ones that said our production numbers are going down. And, and so once other states started then say, well, we need to look at this. And, and then they started comparing across yeah. state lines. And then we were able to piece together. Now we have 15 years of data that yeah. shows it's, you know, pretty. I'll never drop. forget. I came here. I came here in, in May of 2011, here being UGA. And that June, the technical committee meeting was in Lava, Florida. Mm-hmm. 
And I'll never forget sitting in the room and listening to the state reports and everybody was saying the same thing. You know, hey, we're down, we're down, we're down, we're down. And they would get up, each technical rep, you know, coordinator would get up and, and show their data and it and it was all the same. Yeah. And I that's what prompted me at that meeting to say, folks, the first step is we need to take a look at all of your data together because and, and make some inferences about this regional issue that's going on, which bred the figures that have been all I've posted that have been all over social media yeah. and all over showing, look, folks, if you look across all the southeastern states, the trend is the same. And if you're not quite you know, there, at yeah. your tipping point, you're about to be. And we're all headed in the same direction. Yeah. And and it still took a few years oh, it, for yeah. us to to keep saying, folks, we, we've got an issue here. And that was a couple of years after we kind of started the conversation. Right. right. Know, people are like, oh, no, turkeys are great. We came off mid-2000s. I mean, we were estimating 7 million turkeys. I mean, everything was great. Yeah. And hunting was up and hunters were climbing and harvest was great. And then all of a sudden it just started to mm-hmm. – and People. I think part of it was COVID. And I, I think part of, you know, 2017, 18, I had started seeing some traction. You were starting to see, we'd have conversations with people and they were like, I, there's an issue. We got an issue. Yeah. But 2020, when everybody was stuck <laughs> and they looked to social media and the ability, they could not communicate in in person, right. yeah. they had to go to social media and they gravitated towards these, these means of communicating. And they started seeing uh, everybody. We're all in the same they, boat they were, here. They were driving for interaction. Yeah. I mean, they were going to just talk because yeah. they wanted to talk to them. Hey, I, it's funny you say, Joe Blow, that you are seeing declines. So am I, you know, and I'm 10 states away from you. And, and you just saw this, I think, you just saw this groundswell of, man, I've been seeing this for five years now or 10 years. And I didn't realize that this was a, a, a regional national issue. I just thought this was something going on in my back 40. Yeah. And that's, in my opinion, that's when it clicked. Things really accelerated. I mean, so we're talking eight years after you guys started to see that that. <laughs> that yeah, minimum. That, that, yeah, I'd say, eight, eight, I'd say eight, close eight to a decade. Before, close to a decade. Because there was a paper that I was a co-author on in 2005 in the ninth symposium about where do we go? You know, we've come this way. Where do we go next? And mm-hmm. talking about, we need to be proactive. 2005. 2005. Mm-hmm. And it was talking about, we need to be proactive on this wildlife management practices in the state agencies and the application of wildlife management practices is reactive. You wait till you have a problem before you ever really jump in. Mm-hmm. And that goes back to what Brett said is that we're on the precipice of this happening. So we're, really early adopters mm-hmm. on turkeys. You know, we didn't wait for it to crash and go, uh-oh, now let's restore I wish we'd have been earlier, but... It, yeah. but, but we were early right, compared to right, the others. Right. But I think the reason that we caught it, um, not the reason that we caught it is that almost all states had multiple forms of turkey data that they were collecting on an annual basis. Mm-hmm. They had harvest information, they had hunter information, they had, you know, uh, poll surveys. Some states had abundance estimate, mm-hmm. uh, you know, estimates. Um, for whatever those are. So I think that, you know, when you, when you think about the amount of information that's being collected about turkeys, even at the state level historically, that's actually what was used uh-huh. to 
show that this was happening. So it wasn't because Mike and I and Mark just happened to be sitting around pontificating about science one day on the study site in Louisiana or mm -hmm. Georgia or wherever. It was because a whole bunch of states had already been collecting this data and we just needed to. Somebody needed to sit down. Yeah, and, be like, and then since that time, those states have all agreed to standardize how they mm -hmm. approach this data collection. Uh -huh. So they're at least going to have this stuff so we don't have to worry about jurisdictional boundaries. Of uh -huh. South Carolina did it one way and Missouri did it another way. Well, those aren't comparable. Now they're using the, they're going to use all the standard methods so they know they can compare them. And then that way we can actually get a true sense of what's going on as opposed to going, well, that's got a little bit different variation. Uh -huh. And then that discounts, unfortunately, the information that's produced because another state won't accept it. Now, so having that standardization will be critical. And that was a byproduct. It was a byproduct of so so basically what happened is at that live oak meeting in 2011, I said, hey, folks, would you just like would each state be willing to just give us the data so that we can sit down and kind of summarize it, which then resulted in in Mike Byrne hiring a postdoc, mm -hmm. a postdoctoral researcher to do nothing but make sense of all of this, these the state level data. And to his credit, he did a phenomenal job. And and when he when he produced all of the figures, it, it was so it's so it's so obvious that every state is, has followed the same trajectory. And that's kind of where I, I'm not going to say this started. Yeah, that's kind of where we finally had a piece of information that you really couldn't refute. You could show someone the figure and say, "We something's going on." Now we need to. You know, we need to figure out what the yeah. deal here is. What, what do you think the reasoning was from the time that we, you guys identified an issue to where academia, hunters, agencies, NWTF, that we all started to move towards one goal? And we're talking nine years from, okay, there's an identified problem or issue, either now or it's upcoming to where, I mean, we've like ramped up the, the idea of, well, we need to do more research. We need to look at bag limits. We need to look at season dates. What, why did it take so long? I mean, that's a, that's a, there's a lot of pieces I think just there. because we're human beings. Yeah. 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 Inertia is easy. Yeah. And, you know, there's a great statement. Yeah. 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 Nurses, uh, sorry. I mean, yeah, yeah, no, that's exactly uh, right. And, nurses, and, and, and this is not a criticism, right? Yeah. The status quo is very easy to accept. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, the status quo doesn't require major policy adjustments. Status quo doesn't require regulatory changes. Status quo doesn't require you to do anything. Mm -hmm. It's just... It's also very cheap, right? Status quo, status quo, yep. you don't need. Um, I think that probably the reason we're not in status quo is noise. And sure. that yep. you and I and, and NWTF and others have made a lot of noise, mm -hmm. uh, positive noise, not, yeah. you know, not putting out, critical. Yeah, not yeah. critical is putting out a lot of information. I'm going to call that noise, but putting out a lot, maybe I should call it information, putting out a lot of information about science and what we know and truthfully what we don't know. And then that spurred. Yep. Some stuff, and we, yeah. kind of, and we got blindsided a little bit because if you look back around mm -hmm. 2005 on, there was a there was a period there where turkey research really kind of took yeah. a dive. In fact, because they were everywhere, well, I mean, a lot of agencies looked at it as okay, we made it. we made it. Yep. We've got birds. Now we're going to shift our limited resources mm -hmm. elsewhere. And about that time, you saw where. Prior to that time, to about the late 90s, you started to have agencies that had singular positions that were dedicated to wild birds. Then about the late 90s, early 2000s, they started to add grouse. Then they started to add bear. Then yeah, they started right. to add, and then all of a sudden, 
you have these biologists that have four game species right. underneath them or two or three. But then you start and then it just lessens that. It's an unintended consequence. Uh-huh. They were trying to manage budgets. When budgets get cut and reduced, you research goats. Yeah, and you if know, you've got turkeys already. And they're not out, a problem. Right. Who cares? Right. And then, yeah. then, that, then that goes back to that proactive versus reactive. Wildlife management is a reactive science. Yeah. You see a problem, you solve it. And but thinking back, I can remember you and I talking at a meeting. I cannot remember the meeting. Maybe it was a TWS meeting. And I had the tricky project that I was doing in Texas with Harvard. And you were working with Jimmy uh-huh. in Louisiana. And maybe Chad Lamb was doing something in South Dakota that was at it. that time. And that was it. And maybe yeah. it was the 2016 TWS meeting. Yeah, I don't remember. It was around there. And that was the only things we could identify. It was really yeah. – I went through a period in my career, and I – I've been fortunate to have turkey research every year, but I went through a period where it was I, it was a tough sell yeah. to go to Louisiana Wildlife and Fisheries and say, we need this work. And, and to their credit, you know, LDWF made their partially responsible for my career success because they invested in me as a person and we're going to continue to fund research with you. And part of that was the coordinators in that state at the time. Uh, you had you had guys that were fanatical turkey hunters that were so passionate about the resource, and they were able to convince their administrators that we need to keep doing this work. But the, it was hard to get it was hard to yeah. even get interest. My story is the same. I mean, it was, for you, it was Jimmy Stafford, and then Cody. Mm-hmm. Right? right. For for me, it was Jake Menard and the Texas Parks and Wildlife, and then Co Jimmy and Cody mm-hmm. in Louisiana. Yeah. I mean, it was it, it was, was those guys. What year was that? Two thousand three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Right in there. Okay. Right there. For, for me, it's been four through fourteen in mm-hmm. Texas, and then fourteen on in Louisiana. Yeah, it seems like so. So our high water mark and research investment from the NWTF was the early 2000s, 2000, mm-hmm. 2001. Yeah. And then it kind of dropped off from there. And so up until then, it was kind of gradually going up, going up. And then we reached that plateau uh, and, and it was like, okay, well, shoot, we've done it. We've, uh-huh. their turkeys have been reintroduced or. Yeah. Target 2000. Target yeah. 2000. Yeah. 2002, 2003. We weren't moving birds anymore. I right, see so you were done. We were done. We, were done. we made it. And so, yeah. and so many people asked the organization, just like with the state agencies. And then those people, we we took the, unfortunately, we took our foot off the gas pedal. We're like, okay, we made it. Now we're going to diversify just like agencies mm-hmm. did. I mean, it's just the progression of the organization. But that was, that was then. Okay, now that dropped. I mean, the research dropped out of it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, honestly, sure. for everybody. Yeah. And the old historical people that pushed and pushed and pushed were retiring. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you yeah. Know, and then there was a transition. And then there was that transition of that yeah. person. And then they were like, well, that person retired. Well, we'll bring on somebody else and we'll also give he or she, you know, turkeys and grouse. Yeah. You, I mean, if you go it, back it and look constriction. decades ago at the personalities and the people that were driving restoration and science, turkey science, they, you know, Every meeting they were there advocating for, we need this work. We need this work. We need this work. And many of those people were well-established in their own states. They had been there for quite some time. And when they transitioned out of that into a different part of their life or they they are deceased, then suddenly, to Mark's point, you had this transition where 
you have different people that are coming into these coordinator positions. They're tasked with doing 20 different things instead of, you know, they don't have the tenure that the other person had right, and then right. they just lose their voice. Yeah. You know, it's unintended consequence. Yeah. One, one point that I, that I want to, I want to make, and there's no one here from a state agency, but it's, I, it's, it's interesting to me that you know, you're talking about wildlife sciences, it's reactionary. And it's, it's amazing that the, the agency folks, they have to manage, they have to manage me as well. They have to manage, you know, me getting on Facebook. I'm not saying me specifically, you know, it's on Facebook yelling at the state agency. I mean, that's a very, that's a, a, a unique, I guess, part of their job that, that a lot of us don't think about. You know, when you talk about adjusting. Incredibly difficult. It is. Managing wildlife and natural resources is not that difficult, honestly. (laughs) It's managing us. It's it's the people management. And then you get into this where it's managing to the avid versus the The passive. passive. So how do you manage through those? So, yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, we all here, Mike, you and Brett probably tell people in your classes, if you want to get into this because you, because you don't want to deal with people, you're in the wrong business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. yeah. what we're dealing with is something very passionate to those guys and gals, and they're going to be vocal about it, which yeah. is good. And honestly, I had no idea. I don't know if you did as a young person. No, I didn't. I thought there's this romantic, um, I'm going to go into this this career, and I'm going to to conserve and sustain, <laughs> and I'm going to be this this person that, that is going to make a difference on the land, but I'm going to stay away from people yeah, while doing it. And boy, did I realize really fast when the first guy pulled up behind me at a gate three days into my graduate work, blocked me in and claimed that I had released wolves onto the landscape. I realized really quick that, okay, I, this is not what I signed up for. And it's been like that ever since. I mean, what the science we do, yes, we're focused on on species and landscapes, but at the end of the day, if if it doesn't impact people, then we haven't done our jobs. And I had no idea about that when I was, I, you know, young. I've got a, not a it's a pretty similar story. I was working for Arizona Game and Fish. It's a researcher, and I was pulled over by a sheriff's deputy with his lights on because he wanted to know why the hell he didn't get his elk tag. <laughs> I'm like, and I'm, you know, 23 years old. And I'm like, it was obviously your fault. I'm like, I don't know what's going on. Let me look into that for yeah, you. Sorry. Like, I don't know. You know, it's like, I don't know what's going on, you know, but that was like, wow, this is, this is different. Uh, it's, it's an interesting question of interaction with people. Um, you know, Mike and I don't get paid to talk to people. And, 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 that, and that's, seriously, we don't. Mm. Like, our, we actually get, I don't want to say penalized, but, you know, our job is to do exactly what we do. It's to teach classes. Not and me anymore. Not anymore. Hey. Yeah, I'm not getting there. Uh, to teach classes and educate the next generation and to oversee, you know, that big omnibus type of fieldwork. I, I don't get paid to go talk to people. You know, we, we at universities, we have an entire group called Extension. Whose, whose job it is is to go mm-hmm. talk to folks, right? I, I, my boss does not want me talking to people. That's not me using whatever particular skill set that I've got. Uh, that's not what it's supposed to be used for. But with social media, going back to what you said earlier, that has provided a really fruitful outlet for 
science to be communicated with absolutely no nuance and and very little um, opinion. It's 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 we're able to be fairly straightforward. We're able to be very very honest. These are what the data say. Here's a map of where this bird went. Here's how they responded to fire. And I think that that sort of um, outreach mechanism has been adopted by people like us all across the United States, very species or ecosystem specific, um, that I don't think you and I would have thought of a decade yeah. ago. Yeah. And I do, I, part of my job is to, yeah. I have partially an outreach appointment. Mm-hmm. So most of my work is research, but part of my job that I get evaluated on every year is now, now, now. is, <laughs> you know, what, what's, what reach did you have? You know, yeah. how did you disseminate the information you did? So I can demonstrate to the, uh, I don't know if any administrators will watch or listen to this, but the bean counters, you know, and on campus, they, they want those metrics. So I have to provide those, but in, in today's world, it's very easy to meet those benchmarks because we have so many ways of communicating. That's interesting. So I want to, I want to dive into just, I I guess real quick. So we've, we've got, this is a real quick topic, but so we've got all of, all of this research that's, that's ongoing or coming up. I'm, I'm sure there's projects that are coming down the pipeline together. Um, what, what assurances can turkey hunters have that, you know, that this research is going to lead to what everyone wants, more turkeys in the landscape? I mean, is there, um, what are we doing differently now than what we've done in the past? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Do you, do you want to go first or? I don't know. I'll well, throw this out. Yeah. I, I think we are doing a better job of working across jurisdictional boundaries, across state lines, standardizing data. And we're looking at things on a larger scale. You know, there's numerous projects that are going on that are including three, four, five states. Uh, it's collaboration. Mm-hmm. So I think that's probably what we're doing better now yeah. than we've ever done before. Because before, you'd get a project that would be on a small, you know, geographical footprint. It would be a small sample size. And it would be for that project. And then it would never be applied anywhere else. These projects that we're funding now and these guys are actually executing on have a scale that we've never seen before uh-huh. and technology is giving us more access to more information to make better conclusions and, and to understand the relationship at a scale we've never seen. So that, that would be my answer to it. Yeah. I mean, and, 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 you know, for instance, Brad and I are now publishing the data we publish, the, the pieces of information that we disseminate to agencies and to the public. That information is derived from sample sizes that have never been realized before. And it's because we're consolidating data sets across five, eight, ten states. And instead of having, to Mark's point, you know, you, you would go back in the 90s and you would see a, an article that was written that had 50, a sample size of 50 birds or 100 birds. And now it's it's thousands of birds. And that offers us the ability to provide information that is much stronger mm-hmm. uh, and therefore there's less noise, there's less bias. It, there's more, there's more, it's not definitive. It's science, right? It's always black and white and gray, but, but we, th- there's more confidence in the yeah. information now. And then and to yeah. Mark's point, now you're seeing other, you're seeing other scientists 
in the turkey world that are reaching out to people across state lines, which you didn't see historically. They, we were very siloed in our work. And now I, I think one of, part of that is a changing of the, of the personalities. People, yeah. as they retired, now you have, you have younger. <laughs> yeah, you, you, yeah. Yeah. You have younger, you have younger scientists and, you know, Brett and I are kind of the long in the twos. Oh, the that, that's world. really scary to think about. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you have younger people that yeah. you have more collaborative kind of mindsets and, and something Mark said earlier, you, you have these new quote unquote new Turkey researchers that are, that are working in these states where suddenly the agency sees a problem <laughs> and they, they identify someone in their state to help address it. And, and that's bringing new academics into the fold. And that's always a positive because it's different perspectives, it's different yeah. mindsets, it's different skill sets. And that's, that's really powerful. Yeah. That's good. That's, and that, that almost kind of mirrors just society, the way that we've, the way that we communicate through social media, good or bad, you know, there's just more of it. More. So yeah. yeah, that's, that's good. So I, I do, I want to talk a little bit about Turkey biology and Hunter interaction. That's, that's one topic that it gets a lot of, of people all worked up. So it really, I'm not letting that go. Okay? I'm going to need that. I'm going to need that done. Uh, um, I was actually, I was going to cut that part out in the beginning, the East wind stuff, but I feel like we have to include it. It's got to be in there. Yeah. It's got to be in there. We've referenced it a few times. So, so breeding seasons, um, when, when do like we'll just stick to the southeast? When do when do wild turkeys start really getting into that? Okay, it's go time. Let's start. Let's start. What's the, what's their process? Early in the in the spring, late winter. Yeah, basically you have these winter flocks that split up. Uh, think February, early March. You have gobbling activity that starts to ramp up, but the hens are are still in there. Uh, kind of, I'm not really receptive. I'm not ready yet. You go through March and then you start seeing this, this fairly dramatic increase in breeding activity. Uh, most, it, 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 the data suggests that, you know, early April is kind of this crescendo of a lot of breeding activity across the South. Predictably, uh, 10 days after that, say mid-April, you see this peak in, in nesting activity in most populations. And then this this slow decline. So, you know, the heart of the turkey breeding world is think in the south is think very late March into mid to later April, depending on the population. So we've got a lot of season days that start during that heart of the mm -hmm. of the breeding season. Then, so is there is there an impact when we're taking turkeys off the landscape? I mean, are we disrupting the breeding cycle? With it, other than obviously, like we're taking turkeys off the landscape, is, is there something in their dynamics that, that we're interrupting? Yes. Um, you know the 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 historic assumption was that you'd want to start hunting seasons about median point of of kind of nest initiation, and usually that fall what around second week April. Second week, right? Yeah, about second week April was kind of the standard, right? The, the logic behind that was that, um, you know, female wall turkeys, uh, so turkeys are social species. They have hierarchies within their systems, both within males and within females. Um, 
And female wild turkeys select the male they're going to breed with. It's not the male doesn't run around and just breed with anybody. You know, that's what they taught in the deer world for years. It was always the dominant male. And a bunch of work showed that, like, what, half or three quarters were the yearling, you know, yeah. the yearling button buyer, the yearling spikes running around out there. Um, so females select these males. And, and I think. At what point does that happen? Well, you see, it's issues. We don't know. Okay. I mean, we, we could arguably say it occurs sometime before they breed, but we don't know exactly when it occurs. It could be that that male was selected a year ago, mm. right? Okay. It could be that that male was selected a year ago and died in December due to a predation event, and she reselected a new male in February. It could be it's, it was yesterday. And that's, a, I mean, that's a, a almost impossible yeah. not to crack, right? But it does occur. Um, we, we know that there's selection. There's, in most Californies, there's, there's selection criteria. Um, and the concern is if the more or dominant males are removed earlier in the season, that, that what that does is that pushes breeding back because it's not a ladder. Um, I think that's the right uh -huh. term we use. Right? It's not a ladder. It's not male A is gone. I immediately select male B. Yeah, they reshuffle. They reshuffle and figure out what, and that male, may not, there may not even be a male with them, right? Because if you have a flock that's got one male and they get harvested and they're clustered in the landscape, you know, I think you call it a light bulb, right? Mm -hmm. That light bulb's out. Now I got to go find a new male. And the reason it's important from a population productivity standpoint is in almost all birds, but it's, I mean, definitely in turkeys, earlier nests are most successful. So you want birds bred early because the earlier they breed, the more likely they are their nest is going to be successful, the more likely they are they're going to be able to bring poults, you know, to get them to about a month old so that they can survive on their own, at least get them 14 days so they can get up the trees. Um, and what has historically happened is the pursuit of turkeys has been pushed earlier and earlier. We didn't used to shoot turkeys as early as we did, right? Earlier and earlier and earlier because everybody thinks they're going to be gobbled out, uh, or they're they, right. It was, you well, know, the population was increasing. We're like, uh, did we expand opportunity? Right. So it's it's that dynamic too of opportunities versus wild. You know, could we take advantage of that as a as an industry? And so that's what we're facing now, potentially trying to. Yeah, and back. now so and we, <clears throat> we took advantage, mm -hmm. and and the science I think is. Getting clearer, uh, uh, would you agree with that? I would. The, the science is getting clearer that if we can push it back, if we can reduce the advantage or whatever you want to call it, we can push it back a little bit later, it's likely going to have positive impacts. But there's a really neat project Mike has going on I mean, that we're all both engaged in. You might want to touch on looking at unhunted birds mm -hmm. here because I think that'll shed a little bit light on yep. this idea. That the, the point is that we want more hens to breed earlier. And if we don't mess with that selection routine that they're going through, we think that'll have positive impacts. And the only other thing I'll add here is that turkey breeding seasons used to be pretty short. But six, you know, seven weeks. Six, right? seven weeks. In the, I mean, in the, in the 70s and 80s, right. I mean, it was really short, like got in and got out. Now we see them extending from late March into almost July. I think we've even had hens sitting on nests in August. Okay, and, and that is not because there's a few hens that just happen to be weird. It's they continually get extended because these hens are trying to reproduce. And so starting a little later pushes that later and later every year. So we're trying and to kind of would eventually push where you don't have young of the year birds. They're not as healthy coming uh, into the next right. year. They're not as big <clears throat> coming in to not fall, big, winter, more succumb to winter kill or winter yeah. survival. Yeah. Do you want to put that in context with the unhunted stuff you're doing? Yeah, I would. Before I say that, I would just point out, you know, we've always kind of looked to your question, you know, does it disrupt breeding? We've all, we've largely assumed no, 
as long as you harvest the appropriate percentage or less and you don't open the season too early, right? The recognition, though, is that we've been opening seasons too early in many states for many, many years. And all of our harvest is compacted. Right. I was about to say. So most of the toms that are going to be killed in a population are shot the first two weeks of the season. And that data clearly shows it. It doesn't matter what the season framework is. If you open it March 15th or April 15th, doesn't matter. Most of your toms are dying within the first 10 to 14 days of the season. So with that recognition, it's it's pretty clear if 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 you want to focus your regulatory framework on the biology of the species, you need to shift that harvest to when it's most appropriate for the bird. Because more breeding has occurred. Yeah, We've given them time. Yeah, so think about it. If if you're, let's just say you're removing 25% of your toms out of, out of a population, and all 25% of that occurs within a 10-day window, right? Well, if that 10-day window is just before or overlapping peaks in breeding, that's potentially more disruptive than if it were a week later or 10 days later. Or I mean, it's pretty clear. I mean, if you, you kind of look at that, it makes sense. So what we did, we've started studying an, an unhunted population and that's in South Carolina. It's about 200,000 acre piece of property. Um, and what you see is, is, is fundamentally completely different than our hunted populations. You see, to, to Brett and Mark's point, if you look back at, at nesting, uh, nest initiation data, in other words, when hens start laying and incubating eggs, it looked like a bell curve, right, back in the 80s, where you'd see this ramping up very quickly, bunch of nests on the landscape, a bunch of hens were hatching all at the same time, and then there was this decline. And on our hunted populations, what we see is this, in our world is like a Poisson distribution where you see this ramping up and then there's this slow tailing off that goes all the way into mid to late summer in some populations. Now, fast forward to the unhunted population, it's a bell curve. You see most of the, the hens are doing their activity, they're laying their nest, everything, everybody's at the same time. The gobbling data track it perfectly. So what we see in our, our hunted populations is this rapid increase in gobbling activity in March. And then whenever the season opens, it doesn't matter when it opens. Whenever it opens, you start seeing this decline in gobbling activity that's related and to your point about disruption. We're not killing all the vocal toms. We're killing some of them, and then the remaining toms are changing their behavior. Yeah. Well, that's to me, that's telling. And it, it's consistent with other studies on other game species showing that that hunting activity, it influences how this, these animals behave. And, and the, the pressure, the amount of pressure that we're putting on them is obviously going to dictate that. But they immediately respond to, to hunting season onset. Unhunted population, what do you think the gobbling data looks like? A perfect bell curve, yeah. you know? And so we're, we're collecting information that, that we hope is going to allow agencies to say, okay, well, this is what it looks like in the absence of this activity. And this is what it looks like in the presence of this activity. Now, 
should we, maybe the answer is no, but should we make tweaks to where we can get those images to be married a little better than they are right. now? Right now, they're, they're almost disconnected. Could we marry them a little bit to where we maintain hunter satisfaction, which is obviously, I, I want to be out there when turkeys are gobbling, and I want to be successful. I want to hear birds, but I also want to make sure that that when hopefully when I have grandkids that they're also hearing turkeys gobble and and that this is not something that I see in my lifetime become an activity that that is no longer what it is now. And, and some of the original turkey seasons that were set when we were establishing and the agencies were establishing, they went to the biological data and they said this is when we should be setting mm-hmm. seasons because mm-hmm. I mean it goes back to historical researchers that were saying this is how you should set it we set it and then the social dynamic and the care the the demographics of that and hunter has started to expand Mm -hmm. we wanted to look at more opportunities people see things they make these correlations and all of a sudden it's like how the hell did we end up here and we you know i turkey hunt all over this country i love turkey hunt it was people like me that were pushing agencies saying look we got turkeys running out of our ears here Give us another week. Add, you know, give us a week earlier. The turkeys are gobbling really good, and it just perpetuated itself. And the next thing you know, it's like to Mark's. It's like, wait a minute, how did we get? How did we get right here? And it was pressure being put on politicians and administrators from us, from hunters, yeah. from hunters, from turkey hunters that wanted to be able to to pursue this passion more. Yeah, and suddenly now. You're seeing agencies that are like, okay, hold up, folks. <laughs> we've got to scale back a little bit because we've been doing this wrong for a while now. In some states, we've been doing it wrong from the start. Yeah. But in many states, to Mark's point, when what you saw was, you know, restoration, they closed seasons, they restored birds, populations were doing well. And when they started opening the seasons, they were very conservative. Yeah. And and therefore and populations flourished, and then and there's nothing wrong with being conservative now, right? You know, we just need to, we have to learn. We have to, you know, we talked about the three of us in the last status paper is that we need to provide the social license for agencies to make the decisions to get back to where we were. And, the and, and we need we need to give the agencies <laughs> enough flexibility to make changes and allow us to study, allow the, researchers to. Yeah. to We've got to collect information associated with those changes, and we as people don't want to do that. We, we, you know, we don't want to be patient. We don't want to wait. Give us three years. No, no, no. I don't want to wait three years. I want it now. And and that's not how what we do works. It takes time to. I mean, we've been collaborating over a decade, and we're just now getting the data sets to where I feel comfortable. Saying yeah. this is what's happening. You know, this is what nest success is across the South. This is what brood survival is because we have so much data now. I couldn't have said that five years ago, but now, and it took more than a decade to to amass that amount of information. Yeah. The the human dynamic, I, I think, it is a really understated part of all of this, um, and it's something that fascinates me because I'm with you. I've, I'm I'm part of the problem too. You know, 10, 15 years ago in Ohio, when things were good, you know, we're like, oh, man, well, you're right. Yeah. yeah. Why are we, we need to start. We need to be the second week of April. It's not going to hurt anything. You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, 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 the trick with this is if we really wanted to know, right? 
So if we really wanted to know what the impact hunting season had on wild turkey, we could do that study. Mm-hmm. Here's what, and it's very easy to do. We're going to leave the, the hunting season exactly as it is for the next five years. And Mike and I are going to study the crap out of it, right? Mm-hmm. And then we're going to push the season back a month. And we're going to study them for another five years. And then we're going to Nobody push. would have a problem okay, with no, that. Seriously, right? This is Regret's idea. <laughs> yeah. 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 We didn't talk about this. <laughs> I'm not saying it's a good idea. Yeah, I'm saying that. this is how you do it. And then we're going to move it back. Mm-hmm. And we're going to study it for another five years. That's how you do this kind of work. But the social dynamic doesn't allow that kind of thing, and that's okay, yep. right? So we figure out ways to work around it. Going back to you know what you said, looking at the untunded mm-hmm. populations, collecting data over large time spans. Many of our states have made regulatory changes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, while we've been, been doing studies. And you have the data sample. We brought the data mm-hmm. so we can kind of tease into it and kind of backdoor into it. Um, because those types of studies, which are entirely feasible from a scientific standpoint, are not at all feasible from a social standpoint. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's okay. And that's okay. And that's okay. Right. That's, that's absolutely okay. okay. So, I mean, that's that's just what we face. So, being able to to put data sets together and look at changes in Georgia, changes in Louisiana, yeah. changes in South Carolina, and, and use that information collaboratively with a bunch of other states, right? Yeah. Will will inform this decision process, but it does take time. And and unfortunately, the realities of of the world we live in is an agency can make a regulatory change and an ex- the expectation that you're going to see this dramatic population level effect is misguided. It, you know, it's going to take time for a regulations change to work itself out and reveal a pattern if, if one even exists. So, and unfortunately, that's a very unpopular realization with me. As well, I mean, I want to see an impact now, but that's just not the world we live in. So, uh, you know, I would tell people if you're if you're living in a state where the agency has made a change, you have to understand that they're they're doing that because that's one thing they can affect at the scale at which they manage turkeys, which is across the state. And you need to try to be as patient as possible, recognizing that it's going to take several at least several years for this signal to emerge. And there, there are states out there, for instance, if you look at Arkansas, Arkansas made a, a fairly dramatic regulations change several years ago. And since that change, there, there's a signal there that there are positive effects of that change. You've seen reproduction yeah. increase and harvest is starting it, to increase. It might, it might just be one, we call them parameters, right? It might just be one parameter that changes, right? Holt's per hen might be about the same or, or you know, Holt's survival might be about the same, but what if nest success went from 25% to 35%? And then it becomes compound. Right. right. Then everything, is, you know, it's it's the it's the 10% thing uh, we talk about. Uh, we get 10% more nest success out of these birds, we wouldn't have any problems, right? Well, Tennessee's so, doing a similar thing. They actually had a study going on, they changed the regulations right in the middle of it. Uh-huh. So mm-hmm. kind of what you... Yeah. You said not closing the seasons, but they changed it, and then they had data before, and they're going to have data after. What was the change they made? It, they shifted their uh, dates dramatically. Yeah, they've made a they've made a bag limit change and a date and, time. Time and there are other states that know, are doing the same. Georgia thing. has done the same Louisiana's thing. Done the same thing. Well, so, you know, we we yeah. changed. We went from two birds to one. Yeah. No, what I'm saying is there are other states where there was ongoing research. Okay. Yeah. Then there was a regs change that occurred. And then we can come in and at least go. Yeah. Oh yeah, this was it. Or yeah. If it's the same data, you can compare Kentucky to Tennessee, which isn't the greatest comparison. But if it's the same study, 
then they kept their regs the same and they changed theirs and you get a little bit of a con- mm-hmm. control versus Just experimental factors. Volunteers and some wildcats. The- Probably so. So you, you, you made a comment. You said you it's taken 10 years to get to the point where you feel comfortable with some of the data sets or points, whatever you said that you have, that where you can confidently say, okay, this is what nest success is. So what, what do we know now, broad top or broad statement, what do we know now that we can, that state agencies can make better informed decisions? I mean, what, what, what do we know? I what, think, what it's, I think it's crystal clear, one, that the, the nest success rates we're seeing across our populations in the South are not what we want them to be. We're not producing the amount of young birds that we're stop. That's it. That that is one. Two, once we produce those birds, the percentage that survive a month as polls is also not what we want. Mm -hmm. We we are not seeing nest success or brood survival as high as it needs to be for us to work ourselves out of these, you know, some of these declines. I think that's two of the more startling things, like, okay. You look at a decade of data, and it's pretty clear, about 20 to 22% nest success. That's it on average. So 80% of your nests are failing, okay? And then about 65% of those broods that are hatched die within the first month. So we're just not making a lot of, of young birds. Now, what's causing that? Well, then it starts getting more complicated. You know, you have habitat issues, you have predation issues, which are confounded with each other in a lot of cases. You have harvested, you know, we have these things that are influencing these parameters that we measure. Now, you know, all we do, I mean, we provide the information to the agency and then the agency is going, they're going to have to make a decision on, you know, do we act on it? And if so, how do we do so? That's acceptable. And that's part of one thing that I, I'm encouraged, and, and I think in many ways it's easy to be an eternal pessimist as a scientist. Uh, that's just my opinion. Um, and I try not to be that person. But one thing that really gives me optimism is that there are people listening. There are people paying attention to what's going on. There are people that are willing to take the information that's given to them and make a change, whether it's on their 30 acres, 3,000 acres, 30,000 acres, whatever it is. There are people that are are hearing information now that would not have been five years ago, and they're doing something about it because they care. And what that tells me is there is a tremendous concern and love for this resource, and people want the information and they want to make changes based on that. That gives me... Oh, no, that's 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 absolutely right. I mean, I, I when this goes live and I, you look at the comments and there will be people on there that will say you've seen them on when we talk about the you know, different. Problem. What, what can I do? Yeah. What can yeah, we do? Yeah. How can we help? You know, and, and I think that's you know, I, I say this a lot. When there's something that has really been activated within the turkey hunting community where, where people are really protective about this about this bird. We're crazy. And we're crazy. We're, we're a weird, <laughs> we're a weird yeah. bunch. Yeah. Right? We're, we're and, fanatics. And yeah. people get angry like that. And, and I take the same perspective. People Which is are not angry. A bad thing. It's not. People yeah. are angry because they care. If, if you feel like, you know, whatever the topic is and no one listened, then 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 there's a serious problem mm-hmm. because nothing's yeah. nothing's gonna get nothing's gonna get better. So I think that's a that's a very that's a great point. Um, you know, and I th- I think turkey hunters 
I've said this on many, many outlets that turkey hunters are the most visceral group of hunters I've interacted with. Oh, yeah. They, 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 this bird is, man, it's, it's them. And they're very, very, um, very astute with observations. They pay attention. They're cognitive about, they think about this all the time, not just, you know, the serious turkey hunter is a different type of person. Yeah. And they, they crave information. Yeah. And they want to know more yeah. about the bird and the, and, and the landscapes they live in. And there's, there's like this, I'm not going to say it, it's a brother sisterhood. It's like a fraternity sorority type. It's us. We're, yeah. we're now granted there's, there's bickering fighting and fighting and factions and all this, right. you know, I use decoys. You shouldn't, you know, all kinds of that garbage, but we all want the same thing. Our collective goal is all the same. We we're want turkeys. to be able to hunt turkeys because it's our passion. And I don't think any turkey hunter would disagree with that. They may disagree with what their perspective about how to get there yeah. is, but at the end of the day, they all agree. Yeah. I want to be able to do this moving forward. And I want as many birds out there as I possibly can get. Yeah. No, it's uh, it's interesting because think about the restoration efforts to get us to where we're at today. I mean, we've been a part of moving 200,000 birds to state mm -hmm. agencies. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and 20,000 of those have been uh, moved across state lines mm -hmm. where other states have been helping out. So, I mean, the amount of effort that went into this is crazy. And I think people just want to hold on to it. Yeah. Bass Pro Shops and the National Wild Turkey Federation stand together to help make a difference for the wildlife and scenic lands that enrich our hunting lifestyle. Since 1973, we have positively impacted more than 22 million acres and invested more than $9 million into wild turkey research, an effort supported by Bass Pro Shops. The restoration of the wild turkey is one of America's greatest conservation success stories, but the work is far from over. Through the continued contributions of partners like Johnny Morris and Bass Pro Shops, the NWTF mission is a movement that is delivering the right conservation work at the right place and at the right scale. Hey guys, this is Aaron with The Hunting Public. Each spring we head to the woods chasing turkeys and one overlooked product that we use religiously is Sawyer permethrin. We've used it for years to keep ticks off of us and it's worked extremely well. We don't like messing around with Lyme disease, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, anything like that. So I would highly recommend if you're a spring turkey hunter spending any time in warmer climates in the outdoors to use Sawyer permethrin. Learn about their advanced insect repellents and family of technical lightweight water filters at Sawyer.com. Hey y'all, I'm Jason Hart, founder of Nomad Hunting Clothing. At Nomad, we're bringing simplicity and authenticity back to hunting. Whether you hunt to escape your hectic work life, for locally sourced organic meat, or to socialize with friends, to uphold your favorite family traditions, we're with you and we do the same. At Nomad, we understand your gears and investments, so our products are engineered and priced for every hunter, tested in the real world, and designed to last. Hunting is in all of us. Nomad is with you. What's Nick? What's his spread today? What's he doing? So you got pictures you can talk about. Them. I mean, so, so Nick, uh, his dissertation is mostly framed around uh, the idea that we are seeing very clearly that turkeys revisit some play, key areas within their home ranges. And we'd like to understand, one, kind of how they do that, what that looks like, and then we really want to know what's there. What are the resources that are in place 
in these areas where these birds consistently revisit. But he's, but he's really he's focused. Yeah, he's, he's focused around nesting predominantly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, which is why it's it's super cool stuff. And so you want to you want to know what's there so that we can say, okay, this, this is what, what these birds yeah. prefer. Let's replicate that. Well, so there's yeah. a historic problem with nesting ecology, and I'm as guilty of it, and you're yeah. guilty of it. Is we, we find a nest and then we go stick a real bell pole on the ground and be like, oh, the vegetation is this tall, and then we walk around it in four or five different or eight different directions and do the exact same measurements and we try to correlate that to whether the nest is successful or not. The problem is, you know, none, none of it matters. Yeah. You know how tall the bushes are don't really <clears throat> seem to matter. So. Nick's stuff is super cool because he's looking at the, the bird's behavioral aspects and how they actually move on the landscape. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's my PhD student, but looking at how they move on the landscape and whether they're going back to the same places. It's really neat. One of the coolest things about his findings thus far to me is that it's very clear that so a hen says, I'm going to lay an egg there. She does it. Once she starts laying, she goes and she finds these places in her home range so that when she's incubating and she needs to take a break to go feed, defecate, be safe, she's already scouted. She's already prospected. So we've, we used to think that they went and prospected for the nest itself. They don't do that. Mm-hmm. They fly down the morning of, they, lay, they, they find a spot, they put an egg there, and then... The prospecting begins. Okay, when it's time for me to take a break from incubation, where where do I go where I'm safe, where there's lots of resources? And that's a really cool finding to me because it suggests to me that we've kind of missed the boat a little bit. We focused on this nest when in reality we need to be focusing on prior to that. Because that nest could be randomly placed anywhere we don't have so that, that that's probably the more important or a important point here is that I I won't put words in your mouth. I don't actually think that turkeys select nests at all like 50 years of literature says they select nests. Oh, I don't think I that. think they jump, I think they fly down out of the tree, they're they're walking through the bushes, and all of a sudden they're like, I I need to put an egg on the ground. And they, have, and they find the best. And they find uh, not best. Yeah, they find a site. They find a site. And I think they, I can make it work here. Right. I'm and putting if an egg they there. randomly yeah. put that site, that that nest, if they at random, if they put it someplace where they can find resources and where a potential predator species, you know, bobcats, coyotes, being the two predominant, mm-hmm. doesn't happen to run up on them, they just get lucky. Those are the nests that are successful. And that's kind of what Nick's data shows that, okay, if it's really more of a, I flew down this morning and my body said, egg. you're going to need, a, you're going to need to lay an egg here pretty soon. I'm going to, to walk through the environment and I think I can make it work right there. I'll put an egg there. Okay. Wow. Now that I've put an egg there, I'm tethered what to that. Options? Now I need to go identify some places where I can make this work. You know, so it's like what came first, the nest or the, the egg? The nest or the yeah, egg, yeah. 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 <laughs> I've been waiting to drop that. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. since you started. It was the egg. It was the egg. Yeah. So that actually was one of, the, one of the questions here I think we answered from, oh, cool. from Gregory Dick, uh, Dix. Uh, if if a hen in a, is a, a few days into her laying cycle and her nest is depredated, what does she do with her eggs that are in the queue? Uh, does she hold them till she makes a new nest or does she just drop them anywhere? Perhaps add them to a sister hen's nest. 
There's a lot to unpack. Yes. Wow, so let's, so let's yes. stick to the, so if she has a few days into her laying cycle and, and so she's got an, an egg on the ground and that egg is destroyed, what does she, I mean, does she can they control that? Or, or they, they a couple of days? She has several options. One, I mean, that the, the cycle of producing the eggs has begun. So she can't just hold indefinitely hold an egg in the oviduct and say, I'll hold on, you know, I'll wait for a few weeks. Right. They can't stop that process, but, but it takes a few days. It can slow down. Yeah. So we think what happens is, I, I'm not, I'm just speaking for, I think what happens is a combination of various scenarios. One, uh, maybe she goes and she, uh, she finds another suitable location within her range and she, she resumes laying. Um, the, the, the question about parasitism, which basically go lay in another bird's clutch. We know turkeys do that, but I don't, there's no evidence we have that links it to what, to that particular scenario. Okay. Where, hey, I lost my nest. I'm going to give up. I'm, I'm going to go lay some eggs elsewhere. I mean, that would be really hard yeah. for us to demonstrate. But that, but that scenario doesn't actually occur that often. Most most of right. the time, there are thousands of nests. Yep. They're able to get their full clutch on the ground before anything happens to it because they're not there. There's nothing to draw there. Yep. Very rarely do we see nests. I, uh, Does that make sense? What he's saying is yeah. that she's like, laying the eggs, she's covering the eggs, she and then she's gone. Yep. So her scent is not there. To attract, she's attention. eating. She's yeah, she's gone. gone. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Right. So so very. We don't. When will they circle back? How, how about long? about daily? They okay. usually come back daily for a couple hours. Yeah. You know, it, I mean, it varies by bird, but but usually once a female starts to lay eggs, we don't see failures of those sites. We don't. Those sites don't get predated generally mm -hmm. until she's there, um, on the landscape. Um. So so. That, I'm sure it occurs. I mean, I'm sure that occasionally they get they come across it or something. Yeah, yeah. most yeah. of the time they they lay all their eggs and then they sit and then that's when we see any sort of you know predation or depredation. Yeah, because if you think about it, the eggs themselves, yeah, they have an odor, but it's not like but it. it's the hen that's sitting there that has that scent trail that would attract a predator from some distance. Gotcha. All right. Not the eggs. So you, you, you knocked off another question here from from Glenn Griffith. Has there been any attempt, or have you seen any attempts at using surrogates, um, or if so, what success? So I, I guess so from from an egg laying standpoint, you said they don't really do that often. But when when when, when we hatch, we've got little poults running around. If a if a hen gets predated, or we've seen that, we've seen that. Well, yeah, we we've seen actually a couple. So. I know you've had that one instance mm -hmm. where a hen got predated, another hen picked up her poults. Yeah. I had one that had a, a nest, a female that was on a nest that was just a few days from hatching, and a, uh, a poult from another brood walked by, and she immediately abandoned her nest and went and brooded that other poult. Um, okay. And we tracked her wow. out and everything. Um, so if, if that's the definition of surrogates, that that I don't remember the name of the gentleman or, or the glass, Glenn, if that's the definition of surrogates, yeah, we do see that it's, mm -hmm. it's pretty rare. And that's, yeah. you know, if you if you look at how broods amalgamate once they hatch, yeah. you know, you'll have three, let's say three hens end up and together all, with all of their all. Yeah. And now and they're, they're kind of, they got their social structure, they work out. But then, you know, if you think about eco ecologically, that makes sense because then if a hen is lost, there is a, a and that's probably the importance of making sure that the nesting season gets back to this six week window. Mm-hmm. Because you want everybody have, hatching. You want at everybody the same time. hatching at the same time. We have bolts at the same ages, 
pins are there and they're in larger groups as opposed to spaced yeah. out. And I've even I've posted about this before, and there's there's historical data showing this that you know larger poults will behaviorally dominate smaller yeah. poults. So if you end up with these broods that have to get together and you have big age discrepancy, they're going to get. You've got this constant bickering, constant fighting, constant. You know, you've got some poults that are disadvantaged because of their size and their age, and that matters in their world. You know, so what you'll often see is these these smaller poults will be they'll be isolated in a brood of their own rather than amalgamating with, say, a, a group of poults that's six weeks older right. than they are. You don't see that. So Yeah, they're, they're separated, and then, then you're fractionalizing the population mm -hmm. of the prey base. Yeah. So interesting question here from, from Mark Hebda. Hopefully I'm saying that right, Mark. <clears throat> kind of goes into that, you know, those, those flocks amalgamating. So do wild turkeys have a way of ensuring that they don't breed with members of their original flock, parents or siblings, as they age? Does inbreeding in wild turkey populations result in any genetic disorders? Yeah, what we we've so we've looked at the genetics data. So we pull blood from all the birds we catch, and that's just even if it's a non-genetic. I mean, any wild turkey that's trapped, we're pulling blood from it, right? Yes, and we, and we, we catch the bird. We we okay. and, and the majority of the agencies' uh, research projects are doing the same. Mm -hmm. They're okay. using the same thing. They're mm -hmm. actually coming to squid us here and doing a lot of disease mm -hmm. testing and stuff out here. And what, what the genetics data shows is that these winter flocks, these big flocks that you see like now and on into January, February, there are a number of those birds that are closely related to each other. And it's because you have hens that have their own poults that are in that group. But when those winter flocks split up to become the little smaller groups of hens that are our breeding groups, those birds are not related to each other. And that suggests to, to me that they perceive a cost to associating with Ken during the breeding season. To his question, that's how they avoid right. that. When they split up, they're, they're not around relatives. Right, but it's close camp because the sure. Southeast Louisiana stuff shows pretty consistently that you and have one, yeah. Yeah, one little area in, in the North Shore region, the Florida Parish of South Louisiana, we see fairly consistent, you know, uh, fathers and and you know nieces you know um sisters and cousin type of, a lot closer than you would expect um in in this one area and then we don't well, really have a good answer well and that in that popular we think that population being so in in most of our populations we don't see that we see a lot you know no no relatives hanging around breeding together but in that population that brett's mentioning it's fairly fragmented and isolated. You got a pocket of turkeys up here, and then there's a lot of river corridor and a lot of little woods. And so they, yeah. we, it doesn't appear that they're dispersing. Right. It, they, there are groups of turkeys that have been there for generations, and if that's the situation you're in, it does make sense. You, you really don't have a, you, you have no choice. You're going to be around kin, but in most of our populations, it does appear that there's a, there's a behavioral way of mixing the genetics yeah, they, they move out yeah. and you know kind of get off of each other mm -hmm. so they've got it under control is basically what you're yeah. saying yeah yep for the most part very good very good so we've got we've got a lot of questions i don't know if we're not going to be able to get to to all of them um this is this is an interesting uh question here and this is from bob zavala 
Hopefully I'm saying that right. I've read that turkeys, Merriam turkeys in Arizona especially, consume acorns from oak trees. And so this, this is going to apply to really all turkeys. Do they swallow them whole? Are the acorns proce processed completely within the gizzard? Yes. Do, yes. do turkeys yeah, swallow yeah. acorns whole? Yeah, yeah, they swallow, yeah, they swallow them whole. I've wondered that. That's yeah. why I've asked yeah. that. <clears throat> yeah, they swallow them whole, go down crop and get ground up. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and they um, would have preferences for certain types yeah. of acorns. I mean, there's, yeah. there's obviously going to be, I, I would assume there's a size limitation yeah. on yeah, certain sure. acorns that just, they're going to be unable to yeah. you know, handle. But yeah, swallow them whole. Yeah, and when you look back at the uh, American chestnut, this you know range mm -hmm. historically, you know turkeys forage on American chestnuts. I mean, twice the size. It was not well. American chestnuts are a little smaller than what the chestnuts we've got today. Okay. And so they were. That was the primary forage. You know, white oaks replaced it in the mass component, but oak chestnuts are. But there is a size limit. If you think about it from a predation standpoint, it makes sense too. You've got this bird that a lot of things like to eat. You don't have time to stand there and process your food. You got to do it you're, while you're walking. You're picking it up, so just pick it up, on. swallow it, and let the gizzard do the rest. So an another question from from Robert Redder, uh, staying on on diet specifically during spring. What are what are mature toms eating during during the spring? I mean, obviously what's there, but this, he's asking. There's not a lot of food in their stomachs or in their gizzards when when he's opening them up. Are they just I'm so focused on breeding. I don't think they're foraging in the morning. Okay. Yeah. I think I think that what happens is because generally speaking, I'm assuming that he's got them open, he shot them, yeah. harvested yeah. in the morning, right? They're coming down, they're they're about the business of breeding. They're not about the business of feeding. Okay. And I think probably that's an afternoon. Is yeah. that, that, that gets pecked away at later in the day as the, as the flocks start to move around. Mm -hmm. and that's when they kind of fill up. So I suspect that what he's seeing is not so much a function of them not eating what's available. It's just the timing of the harvest and the fact that they've been up all night, you know, up in the tree, came down and immediately got to the business of making babies. Very good. Yeah. And, if, and, and I, I'm sure people listening to this have seen this themselves. You know, sometimes I've killed birds in the afternoon that, had a little bit of stuff in their crop. Sometimes I've killed birds that had five different prey items in their crop. And I've killed several birds that had a bunch of one thing in their crop, you know, and, and the only thing I could surmise is the ones that had a bunch of one thing went and gorged on itself. it. Yeah. You know, because, hey, when I fly up I'm to Brett's Point, I'm about to rinse and repeat this cycle again, and I'm going to starve myself all night because I have to, and then all morning. I'm, you well, know. you see a lot of birds, too, that, you know, will lose weight oh, sure. Sure. throughout the season, you know, throughout mm -hmm. the season. So they're not foraging like the hens are, you know, they're not foraging in that same manner. So it's it's different, but I do think they gorge themselves. Once they find a source yeah. that's available, they're yeah, like, yeah. okay, I'm here. You know, yeah. and it'll be quick because they want to be on the move again. Yeah. George Hurst, who was a professor of Mississippi State, studied foods and feeding of turkeys for decades. And he's got all kinds of observations of hunter harvested birds that were just, you know, crammed full of one thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And the time I shot in Ohio this year, I opened them up and it was so full of grass seed. I mean, it was amazing. It was just this mound on this on this plate. It's, I, I, it's the most I've ever seen. Yeah. It was unbelievable. Um, good question from Dennis Lapp here. Uh, poults, newly hatched poults, little tiny baby poults. Are they able to eat on their own immediately? Yes. Yes. Right out. Right out of the egg. Three one. Within what few minutes? She gets it? up. Yeah. Once everybody's hatched or she's ready to leave, she leaves, and they have the instinct to peck immediately. Immediately. Have you guys? Seen poults hatch in the wild? Yes. Okay. That's kind of cool. 
these guys are in the field. I've never seen really? it. No, I've never oh, seen it. So you just sit here just like, okay. So I'm underneath the rock. I actually, it was a reel. I can remember to this day. It was a reel on the Kerwalic Management Area. We got out there one morning. We were DHF tracking him. It was with, the, I think, Justin, maybe? And boom, right there. We sat back 40 yards of binoculars and watched, watched the whole process for probably six hours. Mm-hmm. How long it got hot. How long did it take for the... They, she wasn't, they weren't done. Okay. We got we got there probably about... I want to say it was like eight o'clock in the morning, and we left a little bit uh, sometime after lunch, and they were still. So that, that was my one experience. I didn't watch it. I got out of there because I, I didn't have a choice. Mm-hmm. I thought this bird, I thought she was dead on the nest, and she, it was day thirty of her incubation. I thought she's dead. And back in the day when we cut our teeth, there was no GPS. You'd listen to these signals. And there were some transmitters that if the bird sat fairly still, the mortality sensor would. Yeah. So For a certain number of hours, if they sat yeah. still, that transmitter changed its pulse. Yeah, it'd be twice as fast. Yeah. Okay. So I get out of the truck and I'm like, oh man, she got she's dead. So I come barreling in there <laughs> and I come over this little rise. I'll never forget this. And there was a about a six-year-old pine, loblolly that had been bent over, I guess in a storm or something, and she had gotten under the bow of that, and I had no idea that I was at the nest, but when I got there, I was like, I mean, I'm like, what just happened? what was that, yeah. what was that? And I look and I'm like, oh no, and boom, she flushes out of there, and I was like, so I literally, I literally turned and screamed it back to the truck, thinking to myself, if she fails, if she, if, if that brood's lost, it's my fault. Well, and that's one thing: as researchers and field technicians, about she did. You want to have as least impact as you can. Yeah, you know, I mean, so and the GPS transmitter. Yeah, everything, yes. everything yeah. changed with the GPS yeah. tags. We used to have to do exactly what Mike did. You had to literally go and lay eyes on. I used to have to do it, mm-hmm. and then we got to the point where we don't have to lay eyes on until a few days later. And you can go out for doing. We do a lot of brood surveys from our mm-hmm. successful nests, right? So we go out and and we'll basically go out. We'll just listen. Okay, do they have pulse with them? Awesome. That means the brood is still active. Get, get out. out. Yeah. And we get out of there. We don't have to go. Yeah. So, question for me, uh, Paul Campbell, Ohio. Um, if you walk up on a nest and you flush a turkey, is she just inadvertently? I mean, we've all done it. I mean, sure. will she come back, or did I just screw up that nesting process and? It depends on the bird. It probably depends okay. on how much energy she's had invested into that nest. If they're early in it, yeah, if they're early in incubation, first couple of days, they're more likely to abandon. Okay. Not saying they will, but yeah. they're more likely to. If they're super late in incubation, no, they're coming they're back. Because yeah. okay. they put a lot of effort into yeah. it yeah. at this point. Yeah. I mean, generally speaking, as a general rule, we don't see a lot of nest abandonment, right, right. like just, right. just bailing off because of people walking off long. But don't spend time there, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. So yeah. no more. All the pictures, oh, I hate that one. Somebody, hey, yeah. the turkey out in the National Forest, mm-hmm. they're sending me 
36 pictures of the NAS. Yeah. It's like, no. Like, yeah. just, so let's, just let's, just, let's just say this right now. It's, it's, I, I've heard this. This is another wives' tale, Mark, that uh, it's bad luck if you take a picture of a turkey nest. And that, if, if that's going to be the rule, I'm, I'm starting. I'm yeah, starting. Let's start it. Let's start that wives' tale. Yeah. tag turkey nest. No turkey nests on Facebook or Instagram. We don't need them on Facebook. We know what turkey eggs look like. Yeah. A friend of mine took a picture of it and put on on Instagram. I texted him, well, look, what are you doing, man? Just get out of there. Every, every time I've, I've kicked up a hen twice, I apologize and I walk out as soon as like, I'm sorry, forgive I was, me. I received a message on Instagram last, last spring, this past spring. And I don't ever want to be mad at some, somebody, you know, somebody contacts me on, on social media. They're doing that because they trust me to, to yeah. provide information. So I, I always look at the messages, you know, and I'm like, Oh, okay. Thanks for reaching out. But this unnamed person who I chastised and he, you know, Oh, I'll never do that again. He sent me a picture of him with one of the eggs over top of the nest. And I was like, whatever, I can't remember his name, but I was like, please don't ever do that again. Thank you for the photo, but please don't do that. That's like the woman that found the calf elk this year and put it in her car, yeah. like yeah. hiked it out miles. Yeah, we we Stop touching wild animals. Yeah. Critters are okay with that. Yeah. <laughs> They're going to figure it out. Yeah. They're gonna, yeah. So here, here's, this is, this is, we're going to move on. This is a really, a really good one. And and Garrett Carter submitted a, qu a couple of questions. And, and this is, this is one of those that's going to start some fights because everyone's got a different opinion, right? Aging a turkey. What is the best indicator of a Tom's age? Spurling, beard, et cetera. How effectively can a Tom be aged in the wild without any known information beforehand? Without any known information. All you can tell is it's either a juvenile, it's Jake, or an adult, or it's an adult. Yeah, um, is a bird, and this is what the data has shown: is a bird with a three-quarter inch spur more likely to be a two-year-old versus not? Yes, but can you definitively assign him as a two-year-old? Absolutely not. And we've caught we've caught Jakes dozens and dozens of Jakes, hundreds of Jakes, and banded them and had them shot years later. And you you could have a two year old bird that had a half inch, an inch, an inch and a quarter. It it just varies all over the place. And if you think about it, that should make sense to you because it's a morphological trait. That's controlled and influenced by genetics and landscapes and soil type, nutrition, you know, population the origin, the stock, you know, yeah, yeah. scale, so, all of that, how much they're walking. I mean, all of these different things. I mean, so yeah, I mean, you, you can do hatchy or after hatchy. Yeah, I mean, yep. and I'll be hypercritical of the deer world right here. Why does it matter how old a turkey is? An adult male turkey can breed. Whether they're two years old or three years old, four years old or five years old or ten years old, we we somehow got into this thing where everybody wanted to know how old their deer were, and and for some reason that has started to creep into the turkey world, and it's it's irrelevant. Yeah. We 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 have we have adult males that can breed, we have juvenile males that cannot breed. That's our demarcation point. Yep. Anything else is just. It's, it's not, it doesn't really provide, maybe there's some science, to the average person, there's not a lot of utility to it. Maybe there's some scientific information that can come from older males being more active in breeding or something like that. But from a, from a 
truly conservation standpoint, it, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Yeah. So let's let's stick on that topic here. The, the questions in here, I've seen it. Um, do jigs breed? No. No. On extremely, extremely rare occasions, maybe. Generally, no. They will. So if you and if you if they'll copulate. They'll copulate. I would okay. say if you see them in the act of breeding, yes, they're just practicing. They're, right? they're, they will copulate, yeah. and hens will accept. What's it copulate mean, Mike, for the rest of us and our biologists? Well, they're they will mount a hen and go. try to breed try her. Practice run, and they try will run. breed her. Are you getting red in the face? But, <laughs> I wanted you to say dry hopping, Mike. That's yeah. what I was yeah. looking for. And the research yeah. from Texas had collected a bunch of jakes years yeah. and years ago, showed that it was less than 10% of all the jakes that were collected produced enough produced viable, uh, not enough. viable yeah, sperm viable. that could viable. theoretically fertilize a clutch. So does it happen? Yes. But if you... And every time I get this question, I, I answer it partially like this. In the turkey world, jakes are not supposed to breed. Yeah. They are juveniles. They are low-ranking individuals. They are not in breeding groups hanging around with hens. So, ergo, they're not supposed to breed. They're supposed, in, in other words, they don't matter until they're two years old. So the answer is no. Yeah. Yeah. It's no, for all intensive population management purposes, the answer is no. So if, if someone shoots a Jake where it's legal mm-hmm. in your state, there's no other than taking obviously taking a turkey off the landscape, there's no impact to breeding. Because well, depends on the rate. It, and he, well, I mean that and also the him. social dynamic, I guess, of the flock that well, if you I mean the way I look at it is, you know, if you if you were to harvest a small percentage of your jake population i'm thinking single digit percentages probably doesn't matter but what you have to realize with to the breeding that year because they're not breeding anyway it's the following year so you know the rate at which you remove them is to me is what matters yeah it's gonna mean because whatever you shoot this year is not gonna be available in year two right right and most turkeys that get shot are are Yep. The next year. Do we know what do you, do we know the percentage of two year olds are actively breeding or is are, are they? It depends on their social yeah, diet. Okay, so that and that's, you have that's, one two year old that's breeding everybody, and the other five aren't if they're socially the dominant bird. I mean, that's my interpretation. Yeah, and what we see clearly with our known age birds, birds that we shoot that we banned as jakes, uh-huh. more than half of them are shot when they're two, and then then it gets. You know, progressively 18%, 15%. Yeah, it, 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 it yeah. drops precipitously. So most toms are shot when they're two. Um, so, theory, I mean, you would think about it. I mean, if you have a social group of two year olds, then yeah, there is a one of those two year olds in that bunch is, is going to be the breeder. You typically don't see older toms associating with groups with of groups. younger toms. So you usually our are going to shows that pretty yeah, clearly. The yeah. older birds, oh, yeah. they have their different behavior. They've they've learned, they've picked I won't say well, they know all they, the young turkeys they, die. They, they, they figure something out. I don't you know. <laughs> we you think know. they probably go about their business differently. I mean, you yeah. have these groups of two-year-olds that that are were Jakes, they know each other, they're hanging around in these 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 groups, and there's a dominant bird and he breeds. Once you get to three, you're, you, you you know, if you look at it, some of these birds become singletons. They're by themselves and they're the breeder, but they're by themselves. And, you know, turkey hunters, we see this all yeah. the time. You know, you call up a bird, you think based on spur length, 
is an older bird. I, you know, yeah, thinking about it, you know, when I hear comments of, oh, I had a group of two or three birds come in, those aren't what I would consider the older age class for the wary birds. Or, you know, that's that wary bird spot sale. Yeah, often, yeah. And then it's also an allocation of resources for that older bird. He doesn't want to go up against those three or four Jake or the two-year-old birds. Uh-huh. You know I mean? just And they've already developed that. They're kind of the college buddies. They're, you know, they're uh-huh. just... We, we regularly... Because in capture operations, a lot of times, regularly, we'll catch yeah. six, eight, seven, ten hens and an adult male. Or two or three jakes and an adult male. Uh-huh. I, I mean, it's pretty rare to catch half a dozen two-year-old males yeah, yeah. all yeah. together, right? Yeah. You know, usually it's, you know, or adult males. Adult. So usually it's a couple, right? <clears throat> it's a couple here, it's a couple there. You know, you don't really have, to, I mean, you catch a lot of jakes together. So it's pretty rare to just, I mean, I can't remember any shots we've had lately that have been really, really male, like super heavy on any of our study sites. I mean, maybe well, and, and, and we catch them and we hope to catch them in the dead of winter yeah. when these yeah. winter flocks of toms stuff, uh, are multiple ages. Yeah. And they're tolerating each other. Yeah. They're getting along because they kind of have to in this winter flock. It's food. Safety in numbers. Yeah. 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 Um, but then that kind of dissolves when they go into their breeding right. groups. And logic dictates that, you know, and we, we kind of see this in, in our telemetry data is, you know, birds that know each other are more likely to spend time around each other, whether it's during Tolerate spring or summer, yeah. you know? It's interesting. So the, the next the next cycle or the next section here uh, of questions, behavior. This is an interesting question. What This is from Steve Inman. What causes a hen to become aggressive and strut? I have witnessed this odd behavior twice. Dominance. What is it? Dominance. Okay. Yeah. Yep. She's using that as, as a way to assert dominance over- To intimidate, you yeah. know? Even even Strut. Yeah. yeah. In I mean, fact, <clears throat> you know, early imprinting work showed where bills were, b- birds were imprinted to a human. <clears throat> very clearly showed that both sexes will strut when they're a few days old, and both sexes will do all of the behaviors of both sexes. So you'll have male poults that will squat and be submissive, like they're going to be bred. You'll have female poults that will strut and assert dominance and posture over each and other. And he said, well, yeah, whenever we went up and talked to Billy, he said they'd mount. The females would actually oh, yeah. mount. The, yeah. the female poults would mount the submissive male poults. Yeah. Um, obviously, not copulating. You know, and and juveniles and yeah. most other species, too, will do that. I mean, yeah. they're, they're figuring it out. Yeah. This this next question was submitted by Anonymous. I'm going to just insert my name again, Paul Campbell, Ohio. Um, <laughs> I've heard that gobblers cannot biologically not attack a fan used by hunters is there truly a trigger that occurs that makes it to where they don't have a choice i would have worded that question a little differently yeah no, I, see what I, I understand what the they're, they're asking yeah i don't know i mean i've seen a, birds not I've respond seen, yeah, to a fan I, mean, I, I don't think that they're <clears throat> like biologically hardwired to where if i see a fan i immediately have to go run out i think that that the, the approach using fans as a tool for harvesting birds may bleed into that a little bit. And maybe some of the, the popular literature on it would allude to that. But, but I mean, these birds see other males strutting all, the time, all, all the time and they don't attack them. So I can't, I don't think that's true. Well, I'm not saying that 
You know, that, that question may be derived about the efficacy of fanning and, and how, yeah. you know, That's for sure. how, how effective it could be or is. But when you look at the historical decoy use, I mean, decoys were thought to, you know, we've seen some articles that we've found, that, you know, mm-hmm. talking about, oh, every time you use a decoy, the turkey's going to die. Then right. you say, well, shoot, it didn't work this time. Right. Sometimes it's just <laughs> only mood, AKA <laughs> the mood of the bird. But, you know, uh, spinner wing decoys from waterfowl in the early 2000s, you know, late 90s, yeah. people thought that was going to be the detriment of all waterfowl. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's new. It's different. I think it'll plateau. Because birds will figure it out. Based but on my own observations, <clears throat> I'm going to take the science hat off. Yeah. Based on my own observations, and I don't personally fan, reap, but I I have used the tool, and I've been around a lot of other hunters and outfitters that do. My own observation is, no, it's not a blanket trigger. Mm-hmm. You'll have some birds that look at that fan, and they, they're not worried about it. They turn around and walk the other way. They go about their business. You have some birds that the reaction is visceral, it's immediate, and they're coming to it. Those birds, in many situations I've seen, it doesn't turn off. It takes it takes them being shot. It takes them being spooked. It takes something. But I've seen the same reaction from me shooting a bird and having the bird that was with it <laughs> attack it to the point where I had to get up and walk out there to to say, I'd like to go to tr- to the truck today <laughs> if you could quit beating his his yeah. tail, you know. So I think it, in my experiences, I think it's bird specific, situation specific. Yeah. Where did you catch him? What what's his attitude? Where is he at in his day? He's had a few beers in him. He's ready to fight. You, you know, you, you get a dominant bird who is by. This is what I've seen. It's by himself, and he's got hens with him. And he is, they, it, you're in the peak of breeding. Sometimes when they see that fan, he's coming. And and in his world, it should make sense why he's doing that. Mm-hmm. He is seeing Not a subordinate he doesn't know, and he's coming to fix that problem, mm-hmm. right? So it yeah, would, I don't think it's a blank check either. Oh, no. Yeah. It's, not, it's yeah. very individual specific. <clears throat> you know, I one of the funniest hunts I'd, and I'll just, I'll give this example because it was comical. I was in Mexico last spring. First time I've ever been down there. It was such a wonderful experience. And we're sitting there calling this bird, and David Blanton was a shooter. And David, God bless him, I love him. He he self-films, but he also he was he self-filming while he's shooting a 410. So the bird really needed to be close. Well, unbeknownst to David, um, who's out in front and kind of, you know, camoed up and this Tom's out there and he's got his hens, some hens with him. There was another bird there. We started calling. Uh, Billy Argus was calling. So he was sexy, sweet talking. And this bird starts coming and you see that his fan in the horizon and he's, he's slow walking and you know, we've all been there. You know, he's coming. It's just going to take some time. So you're about to see something. That's why we go Turkey hunting. You're about to see this slow walking ghouls come in there beautiful sunlight. He's just glowing. Unbeknownst to David, one of the other persons that I won't name pops a fan up. And this bird sees that fan and he is on a dead run. Well, David needed the bird to slow walk in so that he could film. And this bird runs past him within (laughs) seconds. 
and he's he's trying to film, you know, as the bird's running past to get to us, you know. So you got you got Billy who's calling, and you got this fan, and the bird ran past the hunter, and but it, then it turned off. He got there, he strutted, he gobbled, he raised hell, ah, and you're you know screaming his brains out, and all of a sudden he was like. Okay, I'm good. All the hens followed him. He walked right around us and went about his day. So the reaction was immediate, but it was so short-lived. I mean, it was like, I, I proved my point because the person that yeah. had the fan put the fan down when he got there because he ran past the hunter. Well, and this Tom's mind is like, okay, yeah, yeah. problem's resolved. Yeah. You know? That's interesting. So, so yeah, we fan the fan was the outcome of that hunt yeah. because we were, it was pretty comical. <laughs> I'm trying to kill this bird and he runs past yeah, the hunt. You just started laughing. Oh, we were we were and, and David had no idea to his credit. Yeah. He's like, what happened? <laughs> what in the world happened? Yeah. You know, and then we were like, Well <laughs> so. so if if that is just a response and, and, and like you said, it's individual, each turkey's different. Is are we pulling out? Is it is it the the, the breeding tom at that time, that particular day? The, the hen is selected that tom for breeding purposes. Is it the mature toms that are reacting to that? I mean, so are we taking a turkey out of the breeding cycle based off of the science and, and what you've seen when normally we wouldn't have because that Tom's got four hens with him or whatever it may be in the scenarios, they're all different. Uh, Cause I, that's the popular, that that's yeah. the assumption on, on the the social media. That's the assumption. That's I, don't, where, uh, I don't know if you can make that, that correlation. Cause and that's, I, that's I, really hard to answer. I mean, because you don't know how many times have yeah. we hunted a bird and we're like, why'd that bird walk off? Yeah. Or, yeah. and then the next day you get somebody there, you get a bird screaming towards you, you know, and it's just like, it's variations, but, it's probably less of an issue if we can get season set on a biological right. point and the breeding has already occurred as opposed to utilizing that method um, earlier when they're establishing dominance and they're because that that could impact it could and again that, that's a big word there because we don't know it's hard to mm -hmm. it's hard to quantify or to, to figure that out in my experiences I've seen birds that, I can, I felt comfortable that day he was not going to die had he not seen that decoy or that, whatever it was. But I, he could have died the next day. Yeah, I mean, you don't know, you don't and, know what the. And, and like Brad and I have talked about it, at the end of the day, and to Mark's point, if your seasons are set correctly and the timing and rate of harvest is appropriate, it doesn't matter doesn't matter what tool you use to kill them as long as you kill them yeah, at the, the right time the, I think and the, the right rate. The implicit assumption that I think goes along with the fanning and the, the reaping and all that kind of stuff is that for some is that for some reason it increases success, right? It increases the rate of harvest. If those birds are going to get harvested anyway, then it has a practical impact from a population dynamic standpoint. Okay. But what what a lot of the questions that come in that I get, I'm sure you get them with regard to fanning and reaping, is, is is it having population-level impacts? My gut instinct is probably not, um, because most of the birds that we get shot with that technique are more likely than not going to get shot with another technique. I think probably where the concern for me as a biologist for using a fan stuff is more of a safety aspect. Yeah. And, and that's not this question, sure. but I think that, you know, like the, the Turkey Under Safety Task Force and all that yeah. kind of stuff, but there, there's, there is a safety aspect to it that... 
And it can surely be done safely. Mm -hmm. I mean, the technique can surely yeah. be applied and safely, but I don't think it has a pop. That's where I come in at on it, not so much from a population biologist. Yeah. yeah, I mean, when you think about fanning and reaping, those are two different practices. Yeah. Reaping is when you're actually utilizing the fan, your camo, and you're moving towards yeah. the animal. Fanning is when you're stationary and you're using a fan or hyper-realistic mm -hmm. decoy yeah. to your location. And then you have decoy, which is a different set. So we use those terms synonymously with one another, but they are different practices. But the safety aspect is it violates what we've traditionally known, you know, and so you just need to be careful with that. And we don't have any data that has actually shown that it's any more unsafe than traditionally. And actually some of the more unsafe stuff is when you separate from your hunting partner. Yeah. So it's, you need to be aware of that. So we have to look at it. We have to understand it because we can't find anything that can have a social, that can erode social acceptance of it, of hunting in general. And if we, we pose a inadvertent safety hazard, we need to be aware and we need to be able to adjust. I think the one thing that, that I know that I can do is I can, I can acknowledge my own bias. And I know that that's what a lot of this stems mm -hmm. from is people have their bias about decoy, reaping, fanning or whatever, whatever it may be. And I think that's where a lot of this stems from. And it's an interesting perspective. It's a cultural change. It is for sure. Yeah. Um, good, good. Um, we're going to call this the, uh, the oddball turkeys. Um, Bearded hen on the property. Will there be any double bearded toms? It's from Ernie Bulland. Maybe, maybe, but not because of her. Not because of, okay. Yeah. So, so there's no, there's no relation to weird genetics. You know, double bearded toms or bearded. There's, toms. That we know of. there's no yeah. work has shown that. In fact, all all hens have the papilla yeah. from which the bird, the beard emerges. It's just that some hens express, express it. Something. And about what, 10% yep. is probably what I'm seeing. What I, Brian Wakeling had the highest number I've ever seen in that study that he did out in, uh, what was it, Arizona or somewhere in Marion. I don't even remember like what 15 or 18% yeah. of the females out there had some sort of a beard on I, I had a guy from, and I I can't remember what state it was, but it was somewhere out west. Maybe it was California. He sent me a picture on through Facebook, or he might have emailed it. There were there were twenty one hens in a flock, and nineteen of them That's had beards. Yeah, they do. I've seen where they are locally abundant. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Just like that, right. where some somebody's track will, somebody's piece of land will always have right. beards. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, color face turkeys. Are there multiple variations of those? Are there? Um, is that good to have them in a in a flock? Is it? Detrimental. I mean, where does the color phase come from? <laughs> well, I mean, morphologically, these birds are going to show some differences, right? You're going to see occasionally somebody throws a, a weird genetic, you know, <laughs> event and they become a smoke phase or something like that. But you also see a lot of birds put up online these days that aren't color phase wild turkeys. Those are obviously. Feral turkeys. feral turkeys that have have went up with a feral domesticated feral domesticated, domesticated yeah. turkeys that have, have hooked up. You know, we we commonly see the albino turkey with a black beard. I'm not sure how it works. Mm. You know, because albinos are albino. Um, you know, and the wild, I'm not sure, I've never understood how a bird that is albino doesn't express that in all of its hair, uh -huh. right? But they all have black beards. Um, there's there's a lot of interesting color phases out there. That you see, um, I think that probably, I mean, obviously these birds are all going to be different. You're going to see blending of morphological uh -huh. color at the peripheries of, of 
you know, their interaction, you know, you're going to see changes in wings, changes in, you know, their body, con their contour feathers, you're going to see changes in how the registries look. Um, and there are, there are natural color sure, variations. You know, you burn, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, there are, you know, you have this kind Smokes. of smoky gray, which is a, mm -hmm. you know, the, the melanin that would typically be the darker color. Right. Is gone. Is gone. You have bourbons. You have the, the you know melanistic, the black, right. you know color phase. You have a uh, um, erythrous, basically right. red color phase. Yeah, I struggle to pronounce right. that every time. And and then to Brett's point, then you have these. You know, you have birds that just are all kinds. Of, I mean, they have all kinds of plumage variations. Narragansett. Narragansett. Is Narragansett, that what we see all the time? All the time, people put they got a white turkey and it's got weird, a weird fan that's like black and white, a little brown and it's yeah. got stripes. That's not a wild bird. Mm -hmm. That's an Narragansett. That's right. that's that's a, a that's a domesticated that's a domestic breed. It's a domesticated bird. breed that has been feral. That is feral. feral. Like, like bourbon reds. Yeah. Yeah. Bourbon red. yeah. <clears throat> so will they breed with wild turkey populations? Can they? <sighs> I. Physiologically, I, I, I think they can, yeah. but I don't see. I mean, yeah, I've never, I've never caught ever, ever, yeah, maybe. ever in all my years of catching turkeys. I don't even think I've ever had one on camera yeah. wow. of any of these. So, and so I think they're pretty low density. Let's put it that way. Okay. These really random ones. Did you agree with that? Yeah, and, and where you typically see like like bourbon reds were were released from plantations mm -hmm. in the south yeah. many many years ago. And you'll occasionally see bourbon reds pop up. In fact, my buddy and I called one up that was with two wild toms, and he shot it. And those birds have been in that pocket for, for many, many years, but you only see toms, and they're old. Yeah, okay. <laughs> super, super old. But, you know, they're, they assimilated with wild birds, and they figured out and how to make it work. figured it out. Yeah, one yeah of the, that's a really good point. I don't think I've ever seen... Outside of smoke, or, or uh, I don't even think I've ever seen this. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen a hen in any of those. I've seen we, smoke hens. We I've caught seen. a red hen, red face hen here Did back you? in 2018. Yep. Okay. Um, then that'd be the only one I'd ever heard of. Yeah. So are there are there hybrids of turkeys like when you get out in like Merriams and, and oh, that's Rios and Gould yeah, like that? Yes. Yes, there are. There are. Okay. Yes. You you should expect that. You should expect there to be interbreeding. They're wild turkey. At the end of the day, they're all wild turkeys. So they don't know freeways. Yeah, they don't know a Rio. They don't look at a Rio and go, I'm not breeding with you. You're a Rio. Yeah, I mean, you know? they, and anytime you see a subspecies where they have no geographical isolation, they will interbreed. Yeah. I mean, they just will. I mean, it's, and, that's across. But now the definition of hybrids is they don't, they can't reproduce. The interspecies breeding or inter subspecies yeah. breeding of wild turkeys. Those are viable burgers. They they can breed. They're not, they, hybrids. They're not yeah. true hybrids. They are turkeys. <laughs> they're turkeys. They're yeah. turkeys. Yeah, and we don't they're still turkeys. They just and, and we don't. And this is where I, I think about this. We don't manage birds from from two overlapping demographic boundaries. We don't manage them any differently because they might be breeding uh -huh. with a real might be breeding with an yeah. eastern or a real might be breeding with marriage or whatever the combination is. We don't do anything different. They're turkeys. Uh -huh. The the. The early hybrid designations were when birds were being moved from state to state or even within states is that they wanted to find and they wanted to utilize source birds with the characteristics, Rio's into Rio habitat, Merriam's into Merriam. You don't want to go Eastern to Merriam's habitat. That was some continuity there. And so that hybrid designation 
almost created these states that were like, we're not going to be source birds for somebody else mm-hmm. because they have characteristics and morphological characteristics of both. And so we're not going to do that. That was some original conversations around the hybrid yeah. definition of wild turkeys. Gotcha. <clears throat> now, so this is, this is a good question from Pablo Bacon. Has anyone begun using rapidly evolving genetic markers or even genomic data to better understand effective population sizes across a gradient of land use slash land cover? The genetics part is evolving. Yeah, the, the short answer is yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in the wild turkey world, and I'll cast shade on myself, we, we got started late in this game to some degree because a lot of the earlier genetics work was focused on proving the subspecies. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so let's figure out what's out there genetically. When in reality, we probably should have been focusing more on, well, how could we use some of these evolving <laughs> markers? And to our, I guess, our credit, casting shade on ourselves, the last five to seven years from a genetic standpoint, the technology has just it, it exploded to the point where the tools we have now are so much better than they were historically that yes, that we can now collect blood, we can collect eggshell membranes from nests, we can get tiny little pieces of genetic material and do powerful analyses with it. We we, we are. We are. Yeah. 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 And so on the genetics piece though, there has been some stuff used for genetic markers between domestic and wild. And for, you know, that's in law enforcement cases for poaching and, and, you know, unlawful take of wild turkeys and say they'd be going, oh, no, it's, it's, you know, it's just a turkey, you know. And so that has been used for a long time, but again, not not to the same degree that we're doing now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Little citizen science question, science question here from David Seal. Uh, why has the NWTF not used the apparent resource of millions of game camera owners on both public and private land to get some idea of poult recruitment? So I don't know if... if yeah, Mark. Why, Mark? Yeah. Come on, Mark. Yeah, Mark. Why? I don't know if, if we talk about it. But yeah. why? I mean, just academically, agency-wise, NWTF wise, is is that a viable option to have game uh, camera? I, I got you. You want me to do this? Yeah, yeah. You, I, you and I talked. Yeah, we talked about it. I'm right, so, so I'll know that. So here, so here's why, and, and it's a great question, and it probably should be done. Um, millions of game cameras get put out. I just posted a picture to Instagram. Turkeys on my farm. Mm-hmm. This last week, right? I was super excited about that. Millions of pictures get taken during fall. And it's probably better, to be honest, from our perspective, to count, you know, pulse and population size in the fall before anything happens, mm-hmm. right? Going into the next hunting season, that'd be awful. The, the problem is, is that monitoring with cameras is, is really easy if you want to see stuff. It's really hard if you want to say how many things are out there. Because we have to deal with a lot of different issues with how we detect them and where we detect them and where we sample at and all that stuff. There's actually some pretty good utility to what's being proposed. And Mark and I have talked about yeah. this, about, about figuring out a way to anchor all the photographs that are taken by millions of hunters who put them out for deer, right? I mean, they're not trying to catch turkeys, trying, but they get a lot of turkey photographs. If there's a, if there's a way to pull that information together, um, even in a raw indexing sort of form, probably a system somewhat like the Snapshot USA system that is being run from uh, Smithsonian and North Carolina State University would be the, uh, the way to initially do that. 
Um, but it's a it's a lot of time. It's dedicated staff. They've got four or five, I think, dedicated staff that that oversee that. Just I mean, like Mike and I that oversee yeah. that type of project. It's a lot of effort because you're talking about hundreds of millions of photographs. But the idea is really sound as a way to monitor fall population size and get information on recruitment. And with artificial intelligence you evolving. Can, yeah, yes. And there's Wildlife actually, Insight says there's actually been some studies in I think Alabama and Florida utilizing game cameras to see if they could utilize game cameras to predict population estimations and, and some of those things. So I think it's gravitating that way, but there is a lot of citizen scientists, citizen science that goes on, especially when you think about the state agency's brood surveys that they were uh-huh. doing. And so that is an engagement for the citizen scientists out there is that if your state does participate in those and conducts those, we need your observations. Even if observations are zero, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. we need your observations. So there is some platforms there, but the game camera stuff is cumbersome, trying to go through. So, ah, we, so there has to be some involvement in the technology so we can ground source it, so we can at least have a credible way to use it. And there, there are people out there. We, I have a staff member here that just started recently who specializes in machine learning. There are tools out there that other industries, that other disciplines are using that can process massive volumes of data, whether it's images, uh, spectrograms, whatever, mm-hmm. very, very efficiently and very accurately. I think that's where this part of the field will move. There will be people who uh, develop these techniques that can process massive volumes. Well, of right. Think about goblin chronology right yeah, now. Right. I mean, that used to be done is you'd have reporters out in the woods and then you would have to sit there with a cassette tape and listen to it and say that was a goblin. And you would... Now you've got algorithms on computers that are going in there and pulling that out. And it's it's that time the, stamps on the, the, the math and the biology and the computer program is actually not the limiting factor here. The limiting factor in doing something like that to, to try and answer this question is getting those millions of people to upload thousands of photographs to some, at this point, unknown nexus where they can... And, and all the associated information that we would need, like what's the coordinates for that? And you know, what's did you set the time and the date correctly on your camera and all that kind of stuff? That's that's the limiting factor. It's not the back end uh-huh. stuff, yeah. it's front end stuff. And and that would necessitate volunteer activism, yeah. which is great. And don't get me wrong, I think it can be done. It's a great question. I just don't think I don't know that we're there yet. Yeah. And we referenced earlier about how people want to help. And I think that's where that, that question comes so from. All your pictures to Mike. All your pictures to Mike. Tag him in the wild turkey. <laughs> His <dog>. email is. <laughs> um, so I, I want to stay on that, you know, that, that, that helping topic here. Um, and this is from Big Hugh in South Carolina on Instagram. Uh, what is the best thing an individual can do to help sustain and grow wild turkey populations? That's a big question. Buy a hunting license. Why? Um, what's that? Why? Funding because you're putting money into the engines that run conservation at the state level. Yeah. You, you you maintain a voice. Yeah. You know, for policy by having a hunting license, you can't go and ask for something to be done if you're not a you know yeah. car carrying hunter. Yeah. I'd say identify. Is there any way that you could have some impact to some piece of private land yeah. in your world? 
that's that's where I'm as an acre, two acres, ten acres, yeah. a thousand. Is there any way that you personally could impact positively impact using the science the world that you live in on private land? Because private, I mean, private land is where it's at. I mean, we we, we do a lot. My, I work. Mike works. We work a lot on public lands. Just access is easier, but but turkey conservation exists on the back of private lands. Just there's there's no other way to look yeah, at most it. Most turkeys live on private lands. Most turkeys live on private lands. So any anything, not I mean, I'm 100 percent behind you on the hunting license and, and private land. Like anything you can do to impact land, even even if it's a small acres. I mean, hell, every year I put a picture of the burning I do on the two and a half acres in my front yard, right? <laughs> And it's not much, but I feel like I'm doing yeah. something, right? So, yeah, even if it's small, you get enough people doing enough small stuff, I think that has a, a cumulative impact. Yeah. And I've already had two. One is don't get hung up on a bag limit. You know, you don't have to always kill your limit and that be the driving force. You know, and then the other piece is support the state wildlife agencies and allow them to make the necessary changes and give them time to do it. Yeah. You know, be their advocate because uh-huh. they are – honestly in this for the right reasons they are they are bound to protect the resources that's publicly owned for everybody and they don't have it out for anybody they really want to do the right uh-huh. things and they're dealing with limited budgets to do that yeah, yeah. so buy a license there you go um this comes from duck and strut outdoors and instagram uh, my property is mostly ag land and with very little timber. What can I do to increase turkey activity? Depends on where the nearest birds are to you. Yeah. You know, if you're primarily open area and you're, you don't have roosting locations or you're bar- borrowing birds from a neighbor, then, then my focus, if I was in that scenario, would be to either manage for food resources that are attractive, managed for early successional vegetation that's mm-hmm. that's that's beneficial to, to nesting or broods. Uh, identify where your potential strong suit could be relative yeah. to your neighbors. That, you know? that would be the one I would probably say is see what your neighbors are doing and see what element could you bring to your property that's different but necessary. Yeah, that's that's exactly mm-hmm. Elon, I have a small place in, in Illinois, East Central Illinois, and it's Corn and bean agriculture land, right? You know, what most of my neighbors are doing is growing corn and beans. And what I'm doing is putting in, I've got a lot of CP2. I've got a lot of CP33 that I that we put in on the property. You know, we've got some CRP running around there. Um, You're probably know, not planting some, corn. We're not planting as much corn. <laughs> we are planting some corn. You know, I got to pay for everything. Yeah. Um, we're planting some corn, planting some beans, but we're, you know, we're also doing some, you know, timber thinning. Trying to open up the understory and, and push some more oaks up, so um, and putting fire through it. So yeah, there's um, yeah. So there, there's one one question I want to piggyback off of timber sand improvements. What what can landowners do to sure. to to really dive into? That? Is there is, what's what's the easiest thing to do for a landowner in regards to managing timber? Most impactful, not necessarily easiest. Well, it kind of depends on you know pine and hardwood would be two different scenarios there so if, you know if you're in southeastern pine forest you're you know think disturbance because turkeys in the deep south and pines are going to be inextricably linked to fire mm-hmm. so you know thinnings um 
reducing basal area. That's the biggest problem I see across the South on properties I visit is the basal area. The stem density of trees is too high. If the stem density is too high, meaning it needs to be thinned, then even if you do burn it, you don't get the plant response that you would get had the basal area been lower. Mm-hmm. Um, in hardwood type forest, I think there's two things that I see that are problematic. One is the belief that you can't harvest timber from hardwood forest and have it be beneficial to wildlife communities. In other words, people use a custodial management. Let's just don't touch it. Yeah. You know? When in reality, you know, TSI, timber stand improvements, group selection cuts, individual tree cuts, thinning operations combined with with dormant season fire, depending on your your, your hardwood community, disturbance. You, I mean, disturbance, turkeys benefit from disturbance. So, you know, be willing to disturb the forest that you're that you're, yeah. you're managing. And talk to a talk to your local forester. You know, because they're going to help you understand what what you need to do, how you need to do it, what mm-hmm. programs are there. You're not in it alone. Yeah, we've we've covered a lot of topics today. Um, the last the last listener or member submitted question that I want to ask you guys is not related to um, science. It's not related to anything <laughs> habitat improvements. I like this question. This is from Landon. What is the best piece of turkey hunting advice you ever got? Why don't we start with you? Go. Yeah. Get out in the woods. I mean, uh-huh. spend time in the woods. Yeah. You know, anytime you've got an opportunity to go, go. And uh, that's what I would say. Try it. Brett? Um, sit still? Yeah. I remember dad telling me that. Um, yeah. Go. I mean, if you're, not, if you're not in the woods, you're not having fun, you're not living your best life, so you might as well be getting some sap in your veins. So. Yeah. Two things. One, my dad used to say, just chill out. I think that's still. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the other thing that I is an analogy that I pulled from Dale Earnhardt, NASCAR driver. Sometimes you got to slow down and go fast. He used to say that all the time. And the older I've gotten, and what he was talking about is sometimes you have to let off the throttle when you go in a corner and let the car sit so that you can power off the turn. And in so doing, your lap times got faster and faster and faster versus hard charging into the corner and, and disrupting the car. And the older I get, the more that resonates with me, that sometimes you have to slow down to go fast. What I mean is sometimes if you will just slow down and let the hunt come to you, let things evolve, mm-hmm. let the day progress, that you'll be successful versus push, 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 push. That I, I try yeah. to remind myself constantly of that. Just sometimes you have to slow down to go fast. Yeah. That's, that's probably the, the best advice that I, it, it was slow down to speed up. And it's the yeah. same, that's yeah. the same thing. That's yeah. the way it was related to me. And, you know, it's funny how, how we all answered that question. I don't, Landon might've been looking for, oh, you know, use a tube call or, you know, <laughs> go out here and, you know, and, but this very sit longer. Too. Yeah. Very if still, you can sit until nine, if you're willing to sit until nine, Sit till nine thirty. Yeah. Very what's the worst thing that could happen? Yeah. Birds you get to enjoy the birds coming up behind you. Yeah. And you just yeah. don't know. I mean, it. what's the worst thing that could happen by yeah. sitting? Yeah. Actually, you, think, you, you think it's time to get up? Wait, 15 wait, fifteen. Yeah, that's that's it. Just yeah. slow down the speed up. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. can't say we've all done it. And if you if you haven't happened, if it hadn't happened to you, you're listening. It's going to happen. You, you stand up, and there are two of them right behind you. There, you're just yep. gone. Yep. You just stand there. 
Or, or you're walking back to the truck, which I've done this, and it's infuriating. Yeah. You're walking back to the truck, and you get 200 yards from where you were sitting, and you bump into two birds. What It's like, Mike, if you and, and you look at your phone, and it's like 845. So you have nowhere to be right now. <laughs> like, it's Saturday morning. You know, you took all morning off. Hunt. Yeah. Sit there. You know? So you... To to finish this this up, Mike, you you've been doing this for over three decades now. Um, what's what's kind of next for you on this and your your career, personally and professionally, within the turkey hunting? Um, professionally, I don't want to walk away until one. We've identified a way to figure out how many birds are out there. And two, you can look at me across all you want. I know how to do it. Trail cameras. <laughs> and two, um, I really want to get at some of the questions that we're posing now that we're on the precipice of answering some of these behavioral type questions. I want to walk away when we've given the agencies a little bit better tools to make inferences and recommendations about what they're doing. Personally, I... I don't know. I mean, I want to. I want to make sure there's turkeys to hunt ten years from now and twenty years to hunt. You know, twenty years from now, and and I want to travel around and see where this bird lives. Man, I love to. I love to go travel and turkey hunt and visit with people. And I think the next stage of my career will be, you know, doing that. And then as as a consultant, I do private consulting. And what I really want to do is take what I've learned across 30 some years and take the science and then go implement it on private lands at the biggest footprint possible. And if I can do that, then when I finally hang it up for good, I can look myself in the mirror and say, you did, you did what you could. Yeah. Brett, about you? I don't know. I'm thinking about what Mike said. Cause I mean, I'm 24 years in now, 23, 24 years in now. Um, you look like you're 28 years. I think I appreciate that. <laughs> it's nice the hair, right? Um, you know, good living. I guess uh, I guess I'd echo some of what Mike said. You know, and I want to you know do the whole leave a better than you found it type of thing. And, and I've always had a really enjoyable part of my life being working with the state agencies on solving problems. Um, sometimes not problems they didn't even know they had. Um, sometimes problems that became problems because of other decisions that were made. So, so I'd like to keep, you know, I'd like to keep on doing that. I'm, I'm a little different than Mike though on this one. You know, whenever I get close to hanging it up, I'm hanging it up hard. I'm going to be living on a beach in Mozambique, uh, scuba diving every day. I'll be coming back for turkey season and deer season. Um, but as, as I, as I kind of approach this, we've, one of the joys, I guess, of my career has been the, the young students that I've got the opportunity to mentor. And at some point, I need to let go. And and I need to let them take the reins. And, and we're rapidly approaching that point. You know, um, you know, it's, uh, at some point, it's, it's you know, I and, and Mike as well. But, you know, we're going to be the, the old guys. And we're not there already. And this new cohort is going to come in with new ideas. And, and new thoughts, and I don't want to be an impediment on that. I want to be I want to be extricated from the situation to where I can sit back and provide advice and content and information, but not be engaged on a day to day because I think they're going to bring a much needed, new, valuable perspective to things. So, and scuba diving, living on the coast of Mozambique, very good. Drinking <laughs> drinking sounds pretty good to me. So, yeah. 
Mark, what's next for you? Um, hopefully continue to work with agencies, you know, state federal agencies on, on this stuff because I, I remember when my grandparents farmed that turkey for the first time. And I remember my grandfather being excited, my uncle, my cousin. I was up there. I got to go back and hunt and kill a bird with my little boy up there on that farm this year. So that's that there is is probably where I want to make sure that there's other people that have that opportunity to do that. Um, you know, and then, you know, as far as I've, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it's just trying to make sure we keep believing things better. I'd love to see us figure out what's causing the variables that are influencing the decline and the unstable population we've got. And I'd love to see us on an upward trajectory. Bearded Bile, Dr. Schwartzberg, Wild Turkey Doc. What a talk. Thank you guys. Thank you. It was good. Enjoyed it. Hey guys, this is Aaron with The Hunting Public. Each spring we head to the woods chasing turkeys and one overlooked product that we use religiously is Sawyer permethrin. We've used it for years to keep ticks off of us and it's worked extremely well. We don't like messing around with Lyme disease, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, anything like that. So I would highly recommend if you're a spring turkey hunter spending any time in warmer climates in the outdoors to use Sawyer permethrin. Learn about their advanced insect repellents and family of technical lightweight water filters at Sawyer.com. Bass Pro Shops and the National Wild Turkey Federation stand together to help make a difference for the wildlife and scenic lands that enrich our hunting lifestyle. Since 1973, we have positively impacted more than 22 million acres and invested more than $9 million into wild turkey research, an effort supported by Bass Pro Shops. The restoration of the wild turkey is one of America's greatest conservation success stories, but the work is far from over. Through the continued contributions of partners like Johnny Morris and Bass Pro Shops, the NWTF mission is a movement that is delivering the right conservation work at the right place and at the right scale. Hey y'all, I'm Jason Hart, founder of Nomad Hunting Clothing. At Nomad, we're bringing simplicity and authenticity back to hunting. Whether you hunt to escape your hectic work life, for locally sourced organic meat, or to socialize with friends, to uphold your favorite family traditions, we're with you and we do the same. At Nomad, we understand your gears and investments, so our products are engineered and priced for every hunter, tested in the real world, and designed to last. Hunting is in all of us. Nomad is with you.